You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. I have enough of that when I'm a kid. No tenements, no food, no clothes. I'll save it for the jury, Marty. Who do you think you're kidding? I was brought up in the district, too. I wrote that dialogue when you threw your hot shots at since I was 10 years old. Get it. Only suckers look. Don't be a square. Stay with the smart money. Spring will be a little late this year. A little late arriving. My lonely world over here. For you have left me. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Next week, we are hitting a big number. 250 and it's going to be a giant episode so just join that sleaze baby yep we decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month which we are approaching uh having five full years of bonus episodes i think it's Mm -hmm. like 120 plus as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films which for the month of october we dropped three (laughs) bonus transmissions talking every possible new release movie that you can think of and we have some more on the way so if you want to hear us talk about things like halloween ends or coming soon something like decision to leave the new neil marshall the new neil marshall (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which we will we won't say anything more about that um (laughs) patreon.com slash sleezoids podcast go uh over there and check it out uh that's the uh one plug for the week the other plug uh as always is uh apple podcast and Spotify. Oh, actually, shit. What am I doing? I haven't even. Sorry. This. It's been so long since we've done a guest episode that <laughs> I uh, forgot to uh, plug the patrons. Holy crap. And sorry, I have a huge list. I just was looking at it here. I was like, it's massive. So uh, thank you up front to everyone because I'm going to have to rip through uh, these names pretty quickly this week. Uh, but uh, October was a really big month this month. So thanks yeah. so much to um, uh, Belly Bub. Uh, Artyom Toplin signed up at the annual rate actually got a full year of the show in advance which is something you can do if you want a discounted rate Uh, we had uh, Ben Archambo sign up uh, Zane DeYoung Justin Miller Christopher Salt Hardy Zobitzer John Kasunik uh, Ras Goodwin Joe Morris uh, Barham uh, Jeffrey Aaron Pennington, Coltrane Seek, uh, Mike Ray, Luke Gillespie, Joe, um, Christian Ornelas, Zachary Souza, Zach, Trevor Renstrom, Donnie Darko, but normal, <laughs> uh, Nick Rosola, R- R- uh, Austin Ammer, Alex Katz, uh, Alex Miller, uh, Rick Tracy, I'm still going here. Holy shit! Wow. Uh, Sean Scanlon, Tron, uh, Tom Truchet, uh, William Bush, Mark Smith, Chris Higgins, <laughs> Joe, uh, Timotheus, uh, Johannes Masid, 
Um, oh my God, Zachary Cause, Evan Crowell. We gotta not. We gotta do guest episodes more often here. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is wild. Uh, Fran Evers, uh, Cammy, who also signed up at the annual rate, and that's just October. We're going into November now. Brittany Day, <laughs> Noah Vassar, uh, T, Ethan Mack, and Catherine Vino. So thanks so much to all of you folks uh, for Thank signing you. up. We really appreciate the support, and I hope you're all enjoying those bonus episodes. Uh, but that's the one plug for the week. The other, the other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you were listening on either one of those platforms, and I see the stats, I see you right now listening on both those platforms, uh, please scroll to the bottom and give us a good old rating and review. Helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners. And last but not least, the last plug, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that basically put on anything that you can think of. And you freaks have thought of a lot of things. You've gotten pens, you've gotten notebooks, you've gotten pillows, uh, hoodies, uh, masks. You can get literally anything. Uh, you can find that in the description um, as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com for anyone interested in merch. But that is it for the intro. Welcome back to a, another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host. Amy Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks would have heard from us over on the main feed, where we would have had our big main feed Halloween episode, where we had Eric Peacock of the Soundtracker podcast on to talk about some Halloween party monster movie vibes. We talked about Night of the Demons, uh, <laughs> which has uh, Linnea Quigley uh, shoveling, <laughs> shoving uh, lipstick into her nipple yes, and then does. turning into a demon and tearing a bunch of really annoying teenagers apart uh, very viciously and gruesomely. Um, <laughs> and then we paired that film with Clive Barker's Nightbreed. Uh, as as he puts it, his Star Wars, his attempt to make the monsters the good guys and do some really insane analog action effects work with a bunch of like trigger happy dudes raiding a cemetery and just getting torn apart by all kinds of different uh, types of monsters, as well yeah. as a, a very long subplot about David Cronenberg as a serial killer. Yeah, yeah. And he's pretty terrifying looking in, in it as well. I, I really like his... Uh like eye button design and all of that and it gets pretty brutal surprisingly here and there even though it has very almost like childlike fantasy elements to it it's interesting absolutely so if you haven't heard that episode that was over on the uh main feed two weeks ago make sure to go back and uh check that out and also check out our guest appearance on uh eric's show uh soundtracker where jamie and i went and we talked uh rob zombies devil's rejects because we really love the sort of uh, yes. out outlaw country soundtrack that is included to that very grotesque toby hooper-esque serial murder film uh <laughs> so yeah if you're interested in that at all go check out that um but last week over on the patreon exclusively uh for for those folks Jamie and I, uh, for our, the big Halloween episode this year, we talked about two of our favorite underseen, insanely gory non-franchise late 80s slashers. We talked the uh, strangely tragic cartoon <laughs> synth hysteria of John Grismer's Blood Rage from 1987 and one of our favorite slasher villains, uh, Mr. Terry. Oh, yeah. 
Love the vibes of Terry. <laughs> Having a good time. Yeah, Jay in one hand, machete in the other, strutting Oof. around, murdering people. And we paired that be. with <laughs> with uh, the gothic, satanic, supernatural horror of Ruben Galindo Jr.'s Grave Robbers from 1989, uh, which has a uh, sort of Catholic Inquisition era executioner become a zombie and just start tearing children apart viciously. So yeah, that's a pretty wild kill count, honestly. <laughs> and it just kind of keeps delivering on that front over and over and over again. Very blunt. Yes. Yes. So if you'd like to hear that episode, once again, patreon.com slash podcast. That was the big Halloween uh, slasher vibes episode that we did last week. But moving on to this week, as always, transitioning from the spooky season over into the noir season. We are kicking off November today. The fedoras are on. The, uh, the, the, the sort of gothic uh, terror is missing, but <laughs> no less murderous, no less murderous and, and, and creepy at times. Uh, and to kick off another November, we have a very special returning guest coming back. He is uh, one of the hosts of the We Hate Movies podcast, and that guest is Chris Cabin. Chris, how you doing? Doing pretty good, man. I'm happy to be here for November. I'm always I'm going to bludgeon that word from <laughs> every angle. Every time I try to say it, it's just going to be November. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it doesn't come out that naturally. No, you just have to separate it. I guess you have to do November and just think of them as separate words in your mind. Yeah, but I but I, I I realized that it had been a while since we talked to you. We we actually last had you on um, to talk about Toby Hooper when we were talking about we did a big triple feature episode with you where we were talking about his uh, his canon era. We did Life Force, we did Invaders from Mars, and we did Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, which was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I, I still I I go back to those movies every October, so I have actually just watched uh, Life Force and. Uh, 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 Texas Chainsaw 2 uh, again. I, have, I didn't get back to Invaders from Mars, but I, I also uh, finally watched Eggshells. His uh, is his first movie, I think. Uh, the hippie weirdo movie. It, it's absolutely nuts. But yeah, I, I, I was happy to be there for that. And I'm even more excited to talk about Robert Siodmak. Yeah, yeah, us, us too. This will be our second time talking about him. But, but yeah, Chris, as as you were saying there, we we uh, we obviously we have the guests bring on the double features, and I, you know, I I knew that you had. Uh, I could see your letterbox, and I was like, this man has logged a lot of noir films. So I was like, I was I was curious if I asked you which ones that you would bring on. So, what two films have you brought with you this week, and why did you pair them together? So I brought uh, two of my, f- uh, maybe, I think they probably are my two favorite of Robert Siodmak's Hollywood career. Uh, Christmas Holiday, which was the uh, uh, follow-up to uh, Phantom Lady, which you guys covered before. Um, and then uh, Cry, is it Cry of the City, right? I'm not. Cry yeah. of the City. Yes, Cry of the Occasionally, I'll just like pop in cry for the city. And I'm like, wait, what are you doing? Stop that. <laughs> cry in the city. Yeah. I actually I actually briefly got it confused with Night and the City, which is yep. actually another name of a great noir with uh, Richard Widmack. I'm pretty sure that we've covered. That makes more sense than me just like going fucking AWOL on a fucking title. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I find these to be, uh, I, I think Phantom Lady, I probably would have put Phantom Lady in here had it not been covered before, but 
other than that, I think these are his two mo- uh, grandest and grimmest, uh, grimmest um, movie uh, noirs, period. I, and I think Christmas Holiday in particular is kind of his most like wildly expressive movie. Uh, maybe not as much as his early stuff. I mean, we could talk about all that stuff. Uh, but uh, I find these movies so tragic. And so, I mean, you were talking about gothic. I find Christmas Holiday very gothic. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, and I, assume, I assume that's just the Louis, Louisiana uh, surroundings. But uh, I, I, I can't get these movies out of my mind. Uh, and they're, very two, they're two very different movies, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good that's a that's a good point. The uh, New Orleans setting definitely gives it a little bit of that uh, Southern Gothic vibe a little bit to it. But yeah, we are excited to talk about some more Robert Siedmack, who I have since actually looked up how to say his name. Uh, last time we had this issue when we had Peter Labuz on and we were talking about uh, Phantom <laughs> Lady. Um, but that's also a great film. And yeah, it's, he's, a, he's a great entry point into uh, November because he did a bunch of, um, you know, not all of them are, are that known. Like I think most people know the killers and no spiral staircase, but you, you know, you start scrolling down. This guy did a lot of B crime films, um, over the course of his career. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about, I mean, even, even Christmas holiday was, you know, it wasn't as popular as you might expect. So I am definitely interested to jump into it here. So let's, uh, let's kick things off. Let's start off with Christmas Holiday. Start a little slow reviving music it made in my heart. Yes, time heals all things, so I needn't cling to this fear. It's merely that spring will be a little late this year. All right, we are talking Christmas Holiday, the 1944 American film noir directed by Robert Siodmak and adapted from the 1939 W.S. Somerset Mom novel by uh, none other than uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz himself, the man, the myth, the mank, the (laughs) co-writer of Citizen Kane. And and one of my favorite details of this is this was actually written in his drunken stupor era. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, baby. Yeah, yeah I heard that they actually bu- fired him and then they, someone said something like uh like would you rather this guy drunk or this guy sober and they rehired him. So clearly <laughs> he had some skills. I mean, the, I, man, I, the man was good. What are you going to say, you know? <laughs> he's a killer. I I mean, that's the whole thing with him. He was just he could do it at any time and it makes sense that he was in a stupor. I mean, this whole movie is a nonstop depression, just like alienation <laughs> yeah. and loneliness at its most severe and put under the, you know, the marquee of a Christmas movie, which uh, is just it, it tickles me. So to think about. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 one of my um, favorite uh, parts about this is that they it's a it's called Christmas holiday it has very little to do I mean technically I guess it takes place over the course of a Christmas holiday but it has nothing to actually do with Christmas it came out in June they didn't even it wasn't like they were releasing it around December time or something <laughs> comes out um, in June and everybody's just lonely and sad the entire yeah. time oh look oh great I'm dreading Christmas even more now thank you thank <laughs> yeah. you so much <laughs> Yeah, but this is this is obviously this is directed by once again Robert Siedmak, who is the uh, Jewish German filmmaker who, like many other noir filmmakers who ended up in Hollywood, 
fled to California during the rise of the Nazis and uh, brought over his uh, German expressionist uh, silent era experience with him in the industry where I actually read that his brother Kurt wrote the 1941 Wolfman, which I actually oh, yeah. didn't know until looking that up. And I was like, wow, okay, interesting. His brother um, also directed a few things, but they're nothing of note really. Uh, but okay. yeah, I mean, he was working with his brother, I think even back in Germany and France, like when he was doing a, uh, what's the uh, people on Sunday with uh, Zinnemann yep. and Wilder. I think he had something to do with that as well. Oh, cool. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So he so he he got started in the in, in the silent uh, era in Germany and he even gathered the attention of filmmakers like, you know, he, he I think Billy Wilder co-wrote one of his scripts and, you know, he did he did a little bit of work with Edgar G. Almer uh, before eventually landing some genre work in France and then from France uh, making his way over uh, to America and working on uh, all kinds of B genre pictures for many different studios like like Paramount, uh, which I, when we were doing the research for the Phantom Lady episode, I remembered finding a quote from his time at Paramount where everyone basically everyone agreed. They were like, he does really good, reliable work like he has a really great foundational just skill with the camera that he can always punch up a scene, uh, whether it was like written to be interesting or not. Uh, but nobody liked working with him. Everyone just kind of <laughs> thought he he like on a day to day basis. All the people he was working with kind of thought he was a bit of a dick. And uh, <laughs> Paramount got super, super mad at him because he called the B movie assignments. They kept handing him uh, Paramount shit. And he would just <laughs> say that to their face that they were handing him shit. Uh, That's my very man. blunt about it. That's great. Yeah, and, and, and he's probably well most well-known for his 1946 noir, The Killers, which has a really cool non-linear story to it where they uh, investigate why a guy would let a hitman kill him, which is kind of a, an interesting angle to, to take on it. And it's got a, you know big robbery and a femme fatale and it has one of my favorite noir lines in like any film, which is don't ask a dying man to lie his soul into hell. Mm. <laughs> um. And obviously, we've also covered his his film Phantom Lady, which was his collaboration with uh, Hitchcock uh, producer Joan Harrison and which had all the usual murder mystery and abuse and infidelity. And, uh, you know, it's it's about an engineer who stood up by his wife on his anniversary instead goes out with this mysterious woman who's also alone at the bar. He takes her to the show meant he was meant to take his wife to. And when he returns home, his wife has been murdered and every eyewitness denies seeing this woman uh, with him shattering his alibi and thus creating this uh, this phantom lady. But when we were talking about that, and I think the interesting entry point into Christmas Holiday is one of the best scenes in that film, specifically because of Sid Mac's direction, I think, um, is the insanely sweaty, sexualized jam session musical sequence cool. in that film. That uh, might be just, his best thing, period. Like, I, it, it, it is. It, it's an it's incredible, incredible piece of direction. Yeah, I, I, I just rewatched that right before uh, uh, going on here. Like, just I, I, at some Siad Mac scenes, I just uh, I, I go back to just to watch it. There's one in Son of Dracula uh, where they come to the train station that I really like. But that jazz scene, I, I, I don't know anybody currently who could pull that off. Like, <laughs> yeah. even today, like, it's just the cutting and the, the, the severity of it and the, the, the urgency of it is so unique to that movie um and i i don't think i, I really i'm not sure if he's done anything better than that yeah yeah well and, and it, it really stood out because christmas holiday 
when I immediately looked at the title, I was like, that kind of sounds like a musical. And then I looked at the, I looked at the lead two actors and I was yep. like, hold on a second. Deanna <laughs> Durbin, that's a musical actress. Gene Kelly, uh, one of the iconic musical actors. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what's happening here? What's 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 going on? And there is a, a couple sort of extended musical sequences, though they aren't quite as, um, I guess, uh, choreographed as you might expect Glamorized. for a uh, film that has Gene Kelly in it. Um, but it's just, it's something that he's really good at. He's really good at, you know, using the shadow and light and montage and really getting you involved in a very sort of musical fashion. So it was really cool to put this one on and be like, the story isn't really, uh, you know, like that sort of musical oriented, I would say, other than <laughs> that the Deanna Derman character is a club singer and she does get quite a, a, a couple of songs. But for anyone who hasn't seen Christmas Holiday, uh, I, I loved the tagline, which was uh, don't be fooled by the title. Christmas <laughs> Holiday is a far, far cry from It's a Wonderful Life. So at least they were, you know, being truthful in that sense of the advertising. They were like, don't yeah. come to this thinking it's a Christmas movie. Yeah, Don't, um, don't, don't think that you're going to get Chevy Chase on the fucking roof on this one. Everybody, let's just <laughs> everybody calm down. And I mean, yep. it, and they don't even let you like. It would be funny if they had kind of allowed you to believe it was going to be a musical up until he gets the letter. Uh, but not even like even when beginning when like the fucking general guy is like, well, some of you are going to live and well, some <laughs> of you are, are going to die. You're just going to all. I mean, I was like, oh, so you're just kicking this right off. OK, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, and it stars uh, Deanna Durbin as Abigail Martin, who is a woman who marries this uh, southern aristocrat named Robert Manette, played by Gene Kelly, who has seemingly, uh, as it's uh, said in the log line, inherited his family streak of uh, violence and instability. Um, and uh, soon after she has to reckon with the fact that you know this very charming uh man that she's met and has married could perhaps actually be a kind of murderous uh psycho um and what's sort of interesting about this is that uh the entire movie is told with a flashback framing device where there is basically this uh army character uh named lieutenant charles mason played by dean harrens who uh is going through a breakup of his own and finds himself over the course of a christmas holiday uh stranded in new orleans goes to a club and he meets her and deanna durbin then gets to relay this story to him uh in from in a in a sort of present tense um but uh, this is, this, this was interesting for me. Cause I, cause Chris, what was your first experience watching this? I, I'm just kind of curious. Uh, my first experience was, uh, my first time going, uh, uh, to not meeting my, uh, now in-laws, uh, but first time going to their house, uh, mm. and staying over there for Thanksgiving. Uh, my thing is I usually will just like take, uh, an external hard drive full of movies I want to watch. Uh, and I'll just hang out, and that's what I did with this. I had a, a, a pre-downloaded copy of it, uh, and it. W I I heard about the Gene Kelly thing, and mm. I was like, he's never done something like this, has he? He's never like a lot. Like even if you yeah. think of it in terms of pure performance, he's usually playing very big, and like it all has to be compacted almost into like diamond shape here. Like mm -hmm. everything that is expressive about him, like 
I, I watched it and I was just like, how is how did nobody else try to tap into this? How did nobody else like think that maybe it's like when I uh, this is a terrible <laughs> I'm going to make a terrible comparison here because the movie I'm about to talk about is awful. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of like Doom, the movie where I saw The Rock as a total villain scumbag. And I was like, he's working it. He's doing good. Uh, and, and of course, he's never going to do that ever again. Um, but watching Gene Kelly like so sink into this malevolent character, I, I just was like blown away, completely blown away. And if, as I think after 1944 is like a huge year for him. Uh, he, he does the suspect Christmas holiday, Cobra Woman and Phantom Lady all in the same year. Jeez, uh, wow, And it's incredible. Uh, all those movies are either great or good. Uh, in my opinion. Yeah. And I've Did even found get- with Gene Kelly, like even when he's playing somebody that's more of a, like a kind of scummy character, he's still playing it very big and, and kind of like right. And you know, that charm that he, that classic charm, oh, excuse me, that classic charm that he has. Yeah. And, and with this, like, I guess you could kind of say he has it a little bit in the beginning cause he's putting on the facade in front of, um, how did I, Abigail, Deanna, um, yeah. And, she has um, two names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, I got a little confused there. Uh, in front of Abigail, um, he's definitely putting on this kind of charming performance, but it still feels like there's something there. Like there's a there's a genuine love that he has for her. Um, but even with his like opening thing where, you know, he wakes her up really late and uh, she is like, where have you been? And he gives these like four reasons. And then one of them is is kind of like this. Um, bashful like child that's getting in trouble a little bit uh, which kind of relates to the mother later on too a little bit but um, uh, you can tell that he's got this charm and he's putting on a little bit of a performance but it's at least I guess for her specifically it seems like he's still very much in love he's just a very selfish man I think you're absolutely right because I think he's playing to the character and often in his musicals for the right reason, he's playing for the audience, like very yeah. openly. Like it's it's just how musicals work. Yeah. Um, whereas this, like, yeah, it is so focused uh, on one person, and therefore, to me, is all the more uh, effective. Like, mm-hmm. and and seeing the, how it it paves over all the menace, and like, it's funny. You don't even have to see so much of the menace to feel it because you can see how much he's trying to win her over, and and how desperate he is. Uh, that I think that's probably the first time I watched it. The first thing I was like, "Is that my favorite Gene Kelly performance?" Now, is this absolutely weird movie from <laughs> fucking like about a Christmas holiday, but also like the most depressing movie ever? Period. But like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, like I just it, it's it just blew me away. Yeah, and you don't yeah, even yeah. I mean, you see a little bit of his like uh, kind of desperation in the beginning, but then once it cranks up, and we'll get to it. But at the at the end, when he's just going like dark mode uh it, it's something i definitely haven't seen before from from him and i'm not like the most well-versed person um gene and gene kelly movies but i've seen enough and i know what his reputation is and what i'm used to from him and this at least in, especially in the second half was just not what i was used to at all 
Yeah, yeah. Well, because I mean, like that that was obviously what they were kind of doing up front with the film. Like this was actually mm. basically reworked as a film into being a star vehicle for Deanna Durbin because specifically right. because, you know, she was in uh, lots of musicals and she was in some, like Three Smart Girls and she, she was a child musical actress alongside like Judy Garland. She won a juvenile Oscar. Like it was, it was, you know, she was very frequently typecast in very cute films and roles. And around this time she was making a concerted effort to be in darker, more adult films, essentially. And so they went, you know, this will be the one where she's going to really get to flex those muscles. And the same, they went the same thing with Gene Kelly. So it's like at the time, even this was considered really off casting that honestly, probably people probably would have rejected at the time for, you know, being like, well, Gene Kelly singing, you know, he no, no, like, no, no, no. This is like, he's one of the most athletic dance choreographers. He's like an un, has unparalleled romantic screen charm. And here he is weaponizing that in, in, in some sequences, but in a way that's, you know, obviously more, more openly sinister. Whereas, yeah. you know, you can, you can tell that there's something kind of cold blooded about him and the way that he, he works her. Um, but and for even, now, even with Durbin, like her her musical numbers that she eventually gets are almost all dark or at least even if like, let's say the song that she sings always, which in one context of the film has a romantic quality to it. And then later on is a very sad kind of longing uh, song. Um, I like mm-hmm. that, too. It's like I once again, I haven't seen a lot of um, Durbin's movies, but I can imagine she's like you said, very much more like cute and bright character. Um, and in this, like a lot of the songs are just very longing and like she's missing love in her life and all of that. I think yeah. a lot of the shots in of her singing, especially at, uh, towards the end are very icy. Mm-hmm. Like there's these, uh, uh, there's one shot and it's, uh, of, you can see like the bass player behind her, but it's just her. And this like, uh, almost like, like almost obviously fake, uh, candles, uh, near her or something. It's just such a static shot and she is just so like blank in the moment. Mm-hmm. Like the cuteness, she kind of just lets bleed out after a while. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, I got struck by that. Yeah, because mm-hmm. even like now, when I'm she's not- introduced, she sings a song that is more of like a, a club song in a sense. Um, and then but as the moment that she starts talking to Charlie, it seems like she has something that she wants to let out some pain right away. Um, she doesn't exactly come off as like, I'm going to just try to be the best hostess that I can be. Um, and for good reason, which we find out. Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to ask you guys, how do you feel about the framing device of this movie with Charlie? I was, I was, um, I was kind of put off by it a little bit at first. I, cause I, I went into this knowing that, you know, Gene Kelly and Durbin were going to be the central stars um and then there's a decent amount of time or at least it felt like it i guess with charlie before it all kind of gets into that flashback mode and so i was yeah, like, like the, 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 there's, a, there's a really big section of the film that's like you follow this army lieutenant charles mason who's going on holiday furlough in san francisco to marry his girlfriend and his plans get soured by a letter he receives informing him obviously that uh, his girlfriend is getting married to someone else. Yeah, and well, she's getting so, married to that bastard Frank Fabian. That's right, <laughs> bastard. And and his his story ultimately is is kind of you know interwoven and kind of crosscut with this other thwarted romance between Abigail Martin, uh, who he meets under the name 
Jackie as this lounge singer uh, when his plane is redirected to New Orleans due to the bad weather. And he's introduced to her by this uh, scoundrel of a journalist named uh, Simon, who basically feels like he's just walked out of like sweet smell of success or something like that. And yeah, he's, definitely. He's, he's, he's just uh, he's just a character looking for any kind of grim story that will make him a buck. And I, I love the small bit with him where he's just like, say, you were on that plane, weren't you? And he's just like, no deaths. Shame. <laughs> I wish I had something to write about. Um <laughs> But he takes him to the Southern Dive Bar for the night. You know, this very sort of like stormy thunderstorm kind of mood to the to the events. And after confirming that he's stuck there for at least 24 hours, um, he's introduced to Jackie. And, you know, he takes her to this midnight mass um, where she breaks down and sobs during the ceremony. And then we are revealed that she's now going to tell him why she's sobbing, why she feels the way that she does, why she wanted to go to this concert, which reminds her of, you know, um, her meeting uh, with uh, Gene Kelly's character, Robert, where they used to go to concerts and stuff together. And, and it becomes, a you know, the sort of uh, sort of I think there's an attempt to sort of weave the sort of emotions of, you know, the the woundedness that Charles is feeling with hers. But yeah. I, I had a weird experience with it where I was really, really into the flashbacks and the way that they shot it and everything to do with, you know, Gene, how Gene Kelly and Deanna Durbin were performing it. And every time I felt like I was getting really into it, I felt like the movie kind of it sucked you up and we were kind of like back to Charles. And I think maybe if Charles is sort of woundedness or breakup you know felt as severe to me as hers does because hers is intense we'll say yeah. you know she fell and in really love with yes. with gene kelly who was the most charming murderer you've ever met in your life <laughs> yeah. um and and so yeah i i had this kind of bizarre reaction to the film where i i really felt like it was a lot of starting and stopping which is something that i just didn't expect because for me especially with other cmac films that you know that that we we've talked about and especially what we're going to talk about for example next with cry of the city like that movie in my opinion is just constantly turning the screws and escalating and locking you into like these tense set pieces in a way that i i, I can tell structurally even in the writing this is going for something a little little bit different but mm, i don't yeah. know that it totally you know had the intended effect for me like i felt like it was kind of ramping up and then i was like oh it's fucking army guy again all right all right i guess we're gonna hang out in a hotel with him for a couple minutes yeah, <laughs> yeah. i think i had a similar um similar reaction to that because i i definitely was into all the flashbacks anytime that it's uh deanna and, and kelly i'm i was just locked in um and I guess what I think it's once you catch on to what it's doing, because uh, like I said, it starts with Charlie. So I was kind of engaged with him at first. But then when I realized that this is the, the real story was between Gene Kelly and Deanna Durbin, um, I was like, OK, so I can kind of I can, I can connect the two because they're both in kind of like a pain with the loves that they're sharing. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I, every time, like you said, we go back to Charlie, I just kind of wanted to go back to the real story the real you know meat and potatoes as it were it's just like the flashbacks are really where i think the story is the most interesting because it's just the most interesting characters with charlie it's like because there's not much that they flesh out with him uh you don't get a lot to chew on it's just kind of like you know his fiance left him uh he's trying to learn to move on from someone that would do that to him but that's really all we get for the most part the rest of him is just to try to set up um, Abigail to tell her story. So yeah, those, those moments just felt like, well, I'd almost just rather watch the story unfold as, as it is rather than the whole flashback thing. But 
I kind of understand what they're trying to do with connecting the two characters. I think that would work, but it's definitely uh, of the four movies he made this year. I think this is probably his most like narratively experimental. Mm-hmm. Um, he, cause I would agree. With, I don't like what I, I'm not. I mean, I love all of this movie, but th- I can see at least the middle part when they go back uh, being pretty, uh, to use a, a terrible term, disruptive. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, like, but to me, it all, uh, it was funny you bring up uh, Cry of the City in comparison to this because one, another thing about what connects them is I think they're both death plagued. Um, mm. This, the, the moment he gets the Mona letter, I mean, it seems like death is haunting him. Like he mm. goes on, he gets on the plane and he, he has to be told like three times to put his seatbelt on. Um, <laughs> the entire, like it, there, it looks like they're going to crash for a minute. Uh, and then, like, he gets down and he's immediately in, like, squalor uh, and complete, like, lone- like not, not just loneliness in the terms of what he's going through with Mona, uh, but in that everybody around him, the entire world seems lonely when he touches down. Yeah. And I think that's to uh, Siamak's, uh vision is that he can make that world. Like, I guess, yes, I, I have to kind of uh, concede that Charlie's not a very good character. Um, he's just kind of, he is kind of a model to me, I guess. And I just, I didn't mind him that much. And because they kept on, uh, paralleling him with, uh, Gene Kelly and like, this is what you could have become. Like if you did show up in San Francisco, like this, yeah, this detour to hell on earth, uh, AKA new Orleans, uh, <laughs> I mean, I love the city, but like, I, I get why it's, it has that <laughs> reputation for sure. Uh, like, to, to, if that had not happened, actually, real hell would have opened up. Like, you would have destroyed your life, maybe, like for real. Uh, so you had, and so to that, it mixed up in it enough. Whereas, like, it, it works the best, I think, in the beginning, and then it works good at the end. But the middle part is where I was like. You're just trying to like make it to 93 minutes, I think. Yeah, I mean that was that was yeah. my reaction as I went. Okay, so they they had like a, you know like a really really tense like 60 minute movie, and then and they were like, let's see what we can do to sort of you know kind of sp- spread this out a little bit. I mean, I felt a little bit about that with some of the musical sequences as well. That there were there's a, a, quite a few extended musical sequences, and obviously you know, C and Max shoots them well. They're good scenes, yeah. But it's one of those things where songs. on a on a on a commercial level, most of the reason that you include that is you're you know you're trying to get people invested in in the song separately, which it doesn't really seem like they were trying to do with this, or you're you're trying to you know hit your certain runtime that you're trying to hit, and it, it definitely kind of played that um, way to me, uh, m- mostly in the one that uh, Chris is talking about, where they literally there's a part where they're like we're in the middle of some of the best stuff, and they're like cutting away to the hotel room where they're getting refreshments, yeah. and they're yeah. like, so now to continue this story that I was, t- and I was like, oh guys, come on, like like we <laughs> yeah, were we I- were just. We were just in the middle of some of the best stuff because like the actual flashback content and honestly, I don't mind the cross like because there's actually cross cutting in the flashbacks as well, which makes it that's the part I can see being more sort of intentionally almost experimental where it's kind of showing you the the days leading up to her finding out that her husband is a murderer and it's being cross cut with her memories of like the actual first times like 
like like meeting him and hanging out with him and there's like you know like the way that it's moving between that like technically we see the scenes where he's coming home late presumably having just killed someone that night and yeah. he's charming her very sort of slyly and and and, and devilishly in, in the scene i think you were referring to uh jamie where he has this amazing gene kelly routine of excuses of why he was late and how sorry he is and he's like i do keep terrible hours don't i but you see a there was a fellow i couldn't meet until about 1 a.m and b i didn't know how late it was or i would have postponed c i couldn't get a taxi and had to wait for a streetcar d i've got a wife who never gets angry when i stay out late and i keep taking advantage of her trusting nature and e i'll never do it again and she literally looks at him and is like you fucking devil like you're just you're it. you're so you're so handsome and so yeah. charming she absolutely and, loves it and and so, so it, it's interesting that like we start there before we actually get the scenes of like their meet cute and like going to concerts together and having these scenes where you know like he's saying you know i i can get us free sort of like gallery seats and then he's actually buying them orchestra seats and they're so getting swept up in the music and some of my favorite filmmaking stuff that cn mac does in this film actually one of my favorite scenes just in general is um when they go to the concert and the concert is actually all shot from basically how far away they are. And it, ha- it almost looks like a matte painting. Like it's so beautiful and yep. how it's been framed and how they're playing the music. And it's, it's really great, but there's, there's a level of distance that she has from it. And when he buys her the orchestra seats and they actually go down below, there's this amazing part where, um, she uh the camera actually starts cutting closer and closer and closer to the band and she as she's getting so involved with the kind of the beauty and the rhythm of what it is that they're doing and then all of a sudden the camera starts pulling out again and we are in a completely different location like like the 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 sort of romance of his gesture of getting her the tickets to this 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 concert and how swept up she was in the music it literally took them from the concert venue to a restaurant and the just the the very sort of like elegant and graceful way that he has that transportation like literally happen on screen in a way that you don't even notice until the camera is pulling out and they're in a completely different location and you're watching the dancing and the band from the restaurant that they're at instead and so like like all of this stuff is really amazing and his filmmaking is so strong and it's really getting you swept up in this very innocent girl who is like you know charmed by this aristocratic man and you know then having to do this really really dark discovery where you know she's introduced to his you know very stern controlling kind of pathological mother who has this really dark uh relationship with her son that i kind of wish there was almost a little bit more of and that we stopped cutting away from (laughs) where 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 she knows that her son is a monster she knows what he's capable of she knows what he can do he she she's the one who notices the blood on his shirt she's the one who's sitting there going there's nothing in the paper about it robert and there seems to be a hint of like a past where she's covered up for him a couple other times as well it's it's never it's never said but it's it's heavily heavily implied through kind of the way she talks to abigail eventually when she starts blaming her for the marriage crumbling and all of that on several levels i mean she made him like and and they make that pretty clear uh in the dialogue and the way that they relate to each other um i do i mean i guess the reason like none of that stuff really uh uh, the cutting back didn't ever really matter to me is because i did kind of hone in on this movie as just a movie about loneliness and lonely people. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I mean, Gene Kelly is Gene Kelly. And so like, it's hard to separate that 
uh, when you have like a sorry to the guy, but a plank of wood playing the army guy, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, you know, I get, but like, it, it, I guess naturally you're drawn to some of the magnetic energy, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You just have <laughs> yeah. to be like, it's just, even if like, I, I don't even think of the character, the, the writing was the problem that, that it's just that you are up against Gene fucking Kelly. Who else can, I mean, uh, there may be three guys who can hold fucking court with him. Like yeah. I, I can't imagine it, but I did want to talk about uh, you brought up the uh, orchestra scene. Yes. Those, mm. What I love is how they uh, parallel with the uh, uh, when she goes to midnight mass with him and mm. that whole scene yeah. because she is again like you could technically say she's in the orchestra seat for midnight mass uh, yep. and she is complete and like she just is destroyed because she doesn't feel connected to anything anymore. There's this mm-hmm. unbelievable. I mean, they. What I love about his style is like, yeah, you do. You get to see the whole of the musical performance in something like that. He doesn't like try to get you through those things quickly. You see, like the priests putting everything together. You yeah. see the kids doing the singing, and he puts you so in that place. And if you're anybody else, and especially if you're a religious person. Uh, you probably feel like full, like happy, joyous, maybe even from hearing mm-hmm. this and seeing all this. And then just to look at her face and see nothing, like just complete, like uh, complete alienation from everything around her. Uh, it's, it's tragic. It's, it's really tragic to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah definitely. There's also uh, yeah, I- to connect it to that, that you were talking about the, the, orchestra scene as well and and the kind of smooth transitions that he does there's another great uh, scene where he shows her the um uh the club that he would do all of his like dealings at and gambling and all of that and he there's one really revealing character moment that he has where he gets more excited about telling a story about a man losing a ton of money uh, instead of gaining it and it just felt yeah, the way so that gene kelly's cool. eyes light up explaining that yeah he's great. like he's like and he lost like more money than you could even count and he's so excited about that instead of you know relaying the story of when he won or when one of his buddies won or he saw somebody win the the grand pot or something like that um he's just more focused on i guess like the thrill of it entirely even if that means losing uh, a lot yeah. in his life um and in that same like excitement he says something like, uh, you do believe me that I'm through with all of this, right? And she says, I do. And then they do this smooth transition into the actual wedding where they get married. Um, and it feels just like you'd think, you know, the, 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 the wedding song's going off. They have the kiss and everything. And you'd think that it's like a very happy moment. But you, you just have the context of the previous scene where he was reciting how excited he was about losing. So it just feels like, you know, they're set up for something very doomed. He what, wanted something what, exactly like what he has with his mother, someone who will reinforce the lie. Yeah. Will somebody please tell me that this is the version of my life that I that I want? Like, yeah, it's it, it, it's again, it's I mean, it's I, I'm never going to stop saying this movie is just so fucking depressing. But like <laughs> stuff like that, like specifically hits at what like the hollowness of him, like the fact that he can't come back from that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I like that this stuff, which, you know, even when it has like these kind of romantic gestures to it and Gene Kelly obviously can can frequently uh, play it that way. It's it's always filled with the knowledge of because, again, we're, we're moving between the sequences where, you know, like he is, 
you know, wooing her and telling her about his, you know, his wealthy family name and, you know, his, his hobbies and all of this. And we've already seen the scene where she's spying out the window at his mother, like throwing his bloody clothes into an incinerator and already confronting him about his series of lies about winning money at the rate at the races uh to pay bookies and 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 saying that yo yeah i took those clothes to the cleaners those you know the ones that obviously weren't taken to the cleaners and then he's <laughs> like you know if anyone asks i got them dirty cleaning a car and then the cops are coming by and he's you know he's he's really raging at her and he's basically like you know you you never saw me with that money like you need to cover for me you need to be like my mother and you can see him like plead with her to be like abigail if you ever loved me like you need to do this for me. And she basically just goes, you know, I'll always love you. And which is also part of the song that she sings. Um, and, and there's a, that great deep focus shot of her too, uh, singing on the piano ballad to him, um, oh, while, man. while he's playing the piano and it's the, the lyrics that just not just an hour, a day or a year, you know, she's always going to love him and support him while the mother is like creepily kind of like watching in the background. Ugh. And, and, and then you sure contrast that with the scene, you a little bit later where she's just like, you know, I'm willing to know all about him and know exactly what he is and how terrible he is and keep on loving him anyway. And you only saw what you wanted to this sort of performance that he was putting on. And, you know, I found this stuff to be exactly how Chris has been describing it, like in like in incredibly tragic and incredibly lonely. And w- what was kind of, I guess, sort of strange for me as I, I left the movie going, why, why do we even need to pad this out? Just, <laughs> yeah. s- just like, like stick like with these, Scenes like like in at its very best, I will say I was thinking a little bit about like Shadow of a Doubt. Like I was thinking about the the sort of domestic lavish service of this, you know, you know, decently wealthy family and this, you know, uh, this, you know, these actors putting on these performances of just everyday life and it kind of covering up this kind of like darker sort of cold blooded underbelly to it. And it, it is a genuinely perverse idea and i think that seon mac in some of the filmmaking like gets into that when when he's cross-cutting between these two characters getting romantically involved but all of these dark details slowly starting to accumulate showing you know telling she she, at a certain point she just has to know she has to feel that something's wrong with him and Mm -hmm. yeah for whatever reason i just i didn't get as um swept up in it. It didn't, it, 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 it all felt like it's all there. 100% it's there. It's in the material. It's even in like, I actually think Durbin and Kelly playing off character are quite good oh, yeah. um, for good. them. And uh, for whatever reason, I, I just, I, I didn't, I didn't feel the gut punch. I didn't, I, I didn't feel, I, I thought that he could have got some more perversity out of the actual sort of suspense, like some more suspense sequences that he could have kind of thrown in there. And I felt like every time it felt like that's where we were about to get, like when the mother was confronting her, that was when, that was when we left. That was when we went back to, um, Charlie, which is basically the only thing that, you know, the only sort of qualm that I basically have with the movie, like other than that, you know, and, but, but for me, it was just one of those things where, you know, it, it did kind of, uh, just hinder how, uh, sort of perverse I felt the movie could have gone with everything which you know just you know because because otherwise conceptually as a doomed romance like a breakup noir about a girl who falls in love with a charmer who you know she learns a terrible truth about this is you know I I think in the sequences where it's doing that it says it's as good as you can get but by the time you hit the climax which maybe we should get to um 
I, I was hoping to just get hit a little bit, a little bit harder, even just if, in the set piece itself, if it had just a little bit more energy to the way it was shot or something like that. But it was, it was one of those things where it's revealed in the present that he has escaped prison and tracked her down all the way to New Orleans in the lounge that she's playing at. And there is a good scene where he watches her perform her song and he's kind of watching from the sidelines and it's very shadowy and kind of creepy in that way. And his charm um, is completely gone. At this point, oh, it's too. evaporated at oh, this yeah. point. He's not even he's not even trying to put on the performance anymore. Yeah, he yeah, might like, he's might as well be in a Brisson film at this point. I mean, he's just like completely. Uh, yeah. I took it all out of him. Something you were saying about the uh, something that I think he hints at, and um, it was enough for me, but I can see it not being enough for other people. Is the way that he hints at that as a national thing, not just a personal thing with uh, these characters, because the the the. Um, I guess what they're trying to you know, t- tiptoe around with the uh, family history is that they were they were a southern family who probably had slaves and probably had a, and they probably and she even uh, makes a re- the mother makes a reference uh, to the Civil War uh, at one point and all of the, like that to me really uh, gave a hook because I mean keep in mind uh, Siamak's the guy who got called out in a 1933 German paper by Goebbels. Yes. Goebbels was just like, hey, you motherfucker. And, like, <laughs> and for a movie like, uh, I think it was The Se- the Burning Secret, I think it's called. Um, it's uh, If you find like clips of it, it looks incredible. The Burning Secret, that's what it's called. Um, and I, 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 the fact that um, Charlie, the, 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 uh, the, the military boy, um, is going into World War II uh, when he's uh, leaving this. Right. That's where his fate is. There's this little line beneath it to me uh, that suggests, like, not only is th- this, like, uh, 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 inability to uh, move past veneers and to constantly reinforce false things to uh, uh, hide how ugly and terrible and horrific things have become is a national issue. It's not mm. just about Gene Kelly having this, you know, uh, tiptoe and a smile and like being able to do a little soft shoe. Um, it's this thing that cannot be quelled. And I think that's the part of what Charlie, what, what interests me about Charlie in the movie is that he's just being, he's being presented it. The whole world is already bought into it. The world that he is uh, being sent into, but he is just like being like, oh man. And then it would be, I mean, you, you, you would never see it, but it, it would be interesting to see what would happen when he went into war after seeing all this. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's, 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 it's all, there's, there's stuff all there. That's what I'll say. It's like, it's like, this is, there's, you know, this has been, I think, well conceived as a piece of writing. Um, it's just it is it is interesting because like how did how did you guys feel about how this all wrapped up like when when it comes back to the present day story and Charles because because for me I really loved like the final shot and yep. the final like like moment with her I think Durbin performs it really well um, but I and and I do like the scene where she's like serenading everyone at the club with the romantic ballad that she sang to him in his house and before it was very personally being sung to him and now it's being kind of performed in 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 public. And there is a sort of interesting moment where she agrees to, you know, like like run away with him and is trying to convince him that, you know, she still loves him. And, you know, she 
thinks of herself as just as guilty as 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 him for you know like not actually helping him at his trial and not doing as what his his mother suggests like not making him a better person when she married him you know and not Mm. actually like letting him do what it is that you know not not stopping his natural instinct to want to get involved with bookmakers and uh uh murder them i guess (laughs) um but uh but when 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 Kelly comes back, everything is kind of dealt with in this way where she uh, he's like holding her at gunpoint and is very skeptical and is like, no, no, you just want to abandon me and I'm going to kill you. And then they have a guy sort of appear in the shadows out the window with a with a gun. It's now a poli- looking at Kelly. It's police. It's Simon. Is it? It's Simon who comes in and starts doing mm. the call out the window, right? It's, yes, because. Uh, I, this is another thing to me that like underlines like the the thing of like you don't know who you're really talking to, like mm-hmm. he's like, uh, hey Robert, uh, Robert, uh, I forget his name, Matt Manette, Manette, yeah, Manette, yes, yeah, uh, Robert Manette, and like he's signal, he's trying, he he's really talking to the policeman who's coming up to the yes. window, but Robert still thinks he's talking to him, uh, and yeah. there's this like little like pinch of tension to that. And I, I really love the the shot of the policeman coming up to the window very like slowly mm. and then just bam, bam, bam. I, I yeah. mean, that's I, I think it concludes well because they don't it would be I don't think it would have been as good if they didn't bring Kelly back. And that was mm-hmm. I think the first time I was like, I'm not sure if he's coming back. That's uh, where the real sadness, I guess, is. And in a way, he doesn't like at this point, like we said, all his charm is gone. So you're really just seeing like the desperate man that was inside the entire time. Um, and there's. Yeah, well, I, be- I, I was sitting here going, man, I think I would have liked to have seen more of Kelly playing the dropping the performance because he's kind of interesting. Like he, he is oh, yeah. going like Humphrey Bogart mode. Like he's got the, the, the coat and the hat and he's he's very dark and no and smile. Serious. All and the threatening. Shadows. No smile. Yeah. yeah. And he's even like, I mean, there's it's not said in the film because I think they wanted to change it just for the general audiences. But there's heavy implications that he thinks of her as kind of like a, a tramp because of where she's working. And um, I think in the original story, there was something about it was supposed to be a prostitute rather than just like a hostess. Hmm. Um, and they never say it in the film, but there seems to be heavy implications that when he sees her in the place that she is now, that he kind of is like almost offended by that as well. Um, which yeah, is really I mean, that was one of the things because he like some... kind of just leaves all that love he has for her in this very kind of it, it seems superficial and kind of fast way. Yeah, I mean, like that was one of the things because I, I did look up a couple contemporary reviews at the time to kind of get an idea of what people thought about it. And, and one of the things people did bring up is that they, they think that that change was made because of the code. Because this isn't obviously this isn't a right. code noir. Makes so sense. they think that they did have to kind of clean it up a little bit because the original material was supposed to have her working. And I, it was supposed to be in France, too. She was supposed to be right. in like a French brothel. And yeah, she was Paris, supposed to be like, you know, really... She was supposed to be pretty, uh, you know, filthy and and kind of abused by the time that he's supposed to find her. Man, and uh, maybe maybe even fucking Sion Mac was like, "That's too much." I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I, guys. You know, I'm an asshole and everything, but now let's. You know what? She's just a singer. How about that? She's gone through yeah. enough. God damn it. Well, and I imagine too, it was Durbin that they, you know, they wanted to strike up her image a little oh, bit, yeah. but I don't know that they. I don't think they wanted to shock people quite that badly. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been quite the change from I think that would be too much for even uh, Durbin and what she was looking for on the dramatic scale. 
Yeah, even even though apparently Durbin, she was she, she uh, her as an actress apparently was willing to go to those places because the only quote I could find from Seed uh, Mac about her was that uh, he called her a real actress, and for five days she had to cry, and for five days she cried and cried, but each day at four p.m. sharp she wouldn't cry anymore. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because you because yeah she, she yeah she does she does have you know like a pretty uh, tragic role to play here and I, I don't like the I do like the moment that she gets when they when they do strike down Gene Kelly they they shoot him and you know they they tell her uh, or Charles tells her like you can let go now like you know he's he's been gunned down I think it's sad when he says it to her yes that's really sad yeah you I know, think that's like what this worked a- for me was like the um this ending really did work just because I, I the, the thing that I really was was stuck with in this film was the the romance between the two particularly like the way that abigail sees it because um you know (laughs) kelly's kind of bullshitting the entire time but it is sad to watch her you know desperately try to convince him that she still loves him and that she'd still go away with him and that he's just at this point where he can't believe anybody and it leads to his death um and she's just kind of left with the thought of like a love that could never be she has to mourn him, but she also has to move on. And, you know, I do like the um, very simple metaphor of just like the sky is clearing. Like it's very painful, but she is at least able to to hopefully move on from this pain and, and try to live a, a better life. So... And it's her going through the same experience that the mother described earlier, where it's like she has now seen him for what he actually is, the guy yeah. without the smile, the guy who's wild and murderous and you know like not charming like she finally post prison she sees who this guy actually is and you can sense that she still has feelings for him and like Mm. that is the supposed to like what's supposed to be particularly devastating is she's just like you know technically she's been saved and all has been made right uh and the way that it's depicted is it's this you know huge shot of her looking up at like a stormy sky and you know the 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 tear coming down and you know it, it it does sell the like sort of equal tragedy and catharsis of the moment that she yeah. is uh yeah you know i, I supposed think, to be experiencing i think they would have made it like uh, they could have softened it a little bit or made it a, a little bit more optimistic at the end uh if they had and i'm really glad they did not uh, made there more of a like a direct romantic connection between her and the military guy. Uh, they never yeah. really do that for whatever they're hanging they out. <laughs> they ne- yeah, I'm really happy they didn't because they do just seem like they're two strangers who are hanging out together. That's where um, I thought it was leading to. Uh, just with that, because I'm like, oh, they're gonna have this connection. They're gonna maybe find each other at the end or whatever. And I was happy to find out that they just kind of separate and decide like we're gonna move on in our own ways. And thank you for at least listening to my story and trying to help me. Yeah, listen to me, making making rem- making making me remember that I'm a person and I'm yeah. here. Like I'm not just going up on the stage. And being directed by my madam to whatever table I need to go to, uh, to do like work and then go home and that's it. It's yeah. it, it, like that's what I think. It kind of finally that last shot is like it is severe because she she does kind of see a future now, but there's n- it's all has to be built has to be all yeah. rebuilt. Uh, so totally. you kind of you're back to zero so essentially, um, and. To me, that is exactly what Siad Mac tends to do, is that he's like, 
maybe there is some hope for the future, but I can't even begin to tell you where that begins or what that would start, what that start would look like. Yeah. So mm. just good luck. <laughs> we'll see. You, Tomorrow's a new day. Hopefully you can figure out the first step. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, pivoting towards the reductive rating round, uh, this one, I'm going to give this another watch, I think. But for now, it's going to land at the high three for me. I was pretty close to the four on this one, but I mm. I because, again, I it, it works really well as a piece of sort of conceptual writing with, again, the sort of doomed romance breakup noir. That's actually probably one of my preferred kinds of noirs. Like, I love that tragedy. And we're going to be talking about, <laughs> spoiler alert, In a Lonely Place next week, which I think is one of the Ooh. greatest breakup films as genre films basically ever put to screen. Uh, and my Beautiful. favorite Bogart performance for that reason, like how like he has to play a similar kind of position. Might be the um, best movie. I, I, I can't yeah, say for sure, yeah. but it might be the best movie. Oh, well, here's the thing. I, I will say I got to vote in the sight and sound poll that's dropping this oh, year. And in the lonely place was the noir was I was I had it between two different noirs and it was the one that I almost put in because uh, it is it's like for we're finally hitting one of just an all time favorite for me like a top 100 of all time movie um, but uh, yeah and, and and I think that you know like this obviously is doing it has you know like the the girl falling in love with this with this charmer who has a terrible truth and the only thing for me is that I, I just I, I do wish because I saw a little bit of sort of Hitchcockian sort of domestic perversity to it I did wish that there were a, and Cian Mac especially he's so good at the suspense sequences and I just couldn't help but imagine the version of this that had a little bit more of a glimpse into Gene Kelly's kind of like a bad behavior and how it kind of was poisoning the passion and a little bit more of the mother's really interesting angle of knowing that he's a monster but unable to have you know, not have affection for him uh, essentially and you know like the movie chooses its own focus and it's definitely trying to be you know connect charles uh the army lieutenant and deanna durbin's character abigail like that's the route that they chose and you know it i think it works fine as a piece of sort of melodrama filmmaking it's pretty graceful and pretty handsome and and everything like that but for whatever reason i just kept being like every time the framing device hit back in and the cross cutting that was doing so well in the flashback structure would move out from it and we'd kind of reset and we would start and stop. It got just a little clunky and confusing, uh, emotionally actually confusing for me at times because yeah. I just kept going, man, I just would love to really just sink into the the Kelly and the mother and have a little bit more of them. And it, it just it, for me, it just let a little bit of air out of the the really grim balloon that it was it, it was <laughs> setting up. But but the off brand casting of Deanna Derman and Gene Kelly is surprisingly effective. Um, even though I, I, I could have used maybe a little bit more of Kelly in like what he gets to do in the last like five to 10 minutes where he reveals his true, like kind of dark tormented self. Cause really interesting to see him do that. I honestly wish Kelly would have had more opportunities to do stuff like that in his career. Maybe he does. If anyone knows yeah. of any Kelly's under scene that. that I, that we haven't seen that he does stuff like that. And he's not doing his uh, singing in the rain or American in Paris or young girls of Rochefort, which is my particular favorite <laughs> that he pops up in. Um, but uh, yeah, otherwise very, very solid. And I will say one thing I didn't get a chance to mention that I do want to, to bring up is I especially like the detail in this that is sort of unique to see Mac where uh, the, the detail of the focus on Durbin's, 
sort of the way that she's an, an enraptured audience member of the various musical sequences, like at the, during the ballads and the club songs and the midnight mass with the Latin music, like the music is great and how that connects, I think to, you know, uh, all of the, these emotional things that she's experiencing as Chris was putting it, like the part where, um, you know, she's looking at the midnight mass and imagining the concerts that she's been to. Uh, I, I think it, it, it interacts well with the idea of, you know, uh, Gene Kelly putting on a performance for her and her being shattered by that performance kind of being um, broken. So all of that, very, very solid. My only complaint, and I maybe it, it won't be there on rewatch when I ha know what the movie is now, was just that, yeah. I, I kind of wish it sustained for me the, the tension and the feelings of it a little bit more throughout instead of... Uh, being as uh, structurally experimental as it as as it appears to be it uh, I, I can see the attempt to be more expressive with that for me it just weirdly enough that wasn't the effect I, I did not get more feeling out of it yeah um, I think I'm in the same boat right now uh, it's like it is really the strongest three that I could possibly give and I uh, uh, I kept the file and I definitely intend on rewatching it um, just knowing where it goes because I really was uh, I absolutely loved any time that Durbin Kelly or um, the mother was on screen. I thought all of that was fantastic and really strange and dark at times. And, and I like seeing Gene Kelly take this kind of turn from his usual, you know, very bright and charming performance and just goes like straight dark mode at the, at the, at the end of it. Um, he's just a very desperate man by the end. And I don't usually see that from him. Uh, and I like to, speaking of the performances, there are a couple moments where, and, and I think it's kind of maybe why his character likes um, Durbin's character a lot, Abigail, is when they first meet, they, they meet kind of on that balcony and they're all trying to, to line out of the show because it's over. And, um, and he keeps stopping and talking to her and trying to flirt. And there are a couple moments where her character actually tells him to like move along, like keep going. Um, kind of like putting him in his place a little bit. He never stops the charm, but it's it's just it's a character I, that I or a character moment that I like because she's telling him to stop putting on the performance for at least a second so we can move forward. Um, and there's another similar moment where they go to the other orchestra uh, show and she tells him to shush because she's more interested in watching the the music than him <laughs> talking in in his, her ear so there's just there's moments like that that I really like and then the Gene Kelly thing when he's giving all his excuses and it almost feels like his character couldn't come up with one so he just gave all five uh, I really do enjoy that um, but yeah I, I, I just think that the Charlie stuff it's not even necessarily that I dislike it it's I think it's just the way that it's ordered I w just wish they didn't introduce the film with him and then and then we start to learn about uh, Jackie or Abigail I almost feel like it would have been better if we started with her loneliness in the um, in the club and then maybe he arrived and then she could relay the flashback that way just so it feels like it's more focused on her and I yeah and then that one middle section I just don't think you needed to split up uh, at least as much as it does the 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 real uh, story that's here. Um, but I, I don't know. I really did love the story and I really did love the character. So I'm, I'm going to rewatch it and see if that bothers me the second time because it's it's a great film and I'd still highly recommend it. Yeah, I'll be very interested to hear what you guys uh, think after uh, rewatching it because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is a movie that takes you by surprise completely like it. There's, 
that's why I mean, like, it, it's a five star movie for me. It's my favorite Sion Mac period. Um, oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, it's to me, what is interesting about this is that it is against every inclination you could possibly have, right? It's a Christmas movie re- released in June. It's <laughs> it's the most depressing Christmas movie maybe maybe ever made. Uh, <laughs> and it it's it, it casts two like bright beaming stars of the musical set as like cripplingly alienated lovers who cannot get it together. Um and everything is just uh, anti in this. Like he he was it's only it's something that I think only Sean Mac could probably do because he's just this kind of guy where he's like, no, all that romance shit is bullshit. No, 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 no. I I, I lived through the Nazi <laughs> stuff. Don't don't be playing this game with me. And he just was like, no, take tell tell it straight. And I think probably a reason why the framing device exists is because he didn't want to he didn't want to have the romance uh, feel too uh, big. He didn't want to. Yeah. He didn't want to start with that, like because that's what you would have had to done is start with their romance and kind of build. Unless you did like a a, a double indemnity thing and you start with the ending and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. I think yeah. probably the only reason you the only the, the the way he would have gone is to be like she meets him for the first time and they do take more time to show that relationship building up. And I just don't think I think he was probably turned off by the idea of it having to be a happy movie for a little bit. He just didn't like yeah. that idea. So he starts with like, you're Too going only characters. <laughs> yeah, he starts with a fucking military kid being like, being told by his commanding officer. Well, half your half of the people here, your job is to die. <laughs> you're just gonna die for your country. That's just what you're supposed to be doing. That's and it. now your fiance leaves you. So yeah, ha- yeah Merry uh, Christmas. <laughs> double yeah, double missiles right to your side. Like just, <laughs> I, I it to me it's just it's it it all sets in place of like his mood, his tone. Uh, and what I always look for in a movie is a, 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 somebody's personality that comes through, like breaks through all the different like structures and everything. And I felt him completely here in this movie. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, I think that uh, that is going to wrap it up for Christmas holiday. We're going to be right back and we're going to be talking about Cry of the City. Stick around. Why did you kill? Get his gun. Stay where you are, Tony. Won't be any shooting in this house as long as Mama's here. I'm a little disappointed in you, Marty. You're a big boy now. Pretty funny fella. You don't think I'll shoot? Just make a move, Candela, we see. All right, we are back and we are talking Cry of the City the 1948 American film noir, once again directed by Robert Siodmak and based this time on the novel by Henry Edward Helseth called The Chair for Martin Rome. And the uh, the really interesting thing of note, I think, about this one right off the bat is the screenplay is credited to one Richard Murphy, but apparently with uh, quite a few uncredited drafts from, I actually don't know how to say his name, Ben, Ben Ben Hecht, Oh, Hecht. Hecht. Yeah. Hecht. Hecht, yes. Yeah, I think it's Hecht. The screenwriter behind very, very well-known uh, Hollywood genre films, Rope, Notorious, 
His Girl Friday, Stagecoach, the original nice. Scarface, Spellbound. So uh, that is more the realm of the kind of movie that we're going to be talking about today, which for anyone who hasn't seen the very loose log line here is that there is a petty jewel thief crook and cop killer named uh, Martin Rome, played by Richard Kant. And he, uh, at the beginning of this film, is in quite bad shape from wounds uh, that he has gotten in an altercation with an officer that he has murdered uh, as a result in self-defense, he claims. And as a result, uh, he has a bunch of people uh, trying to find out what it is that happened and also trying to associate him with another high profile crime that happened uh, around the same time. So he has one, a bunch of various characters involved, a slimy, a slimy lawyer named Niles, played by Barry Kroger, who is trying to uh, deal with the client who actually committed the high profile crime and is trying to get him to confess to it. You have his childhood friend, police lieutenant Candela, played by Victor, uh, is it, is it Met- Matcher? Matur? I always I said Matur, yeah. Matur, yeah. yes. Well, and, and we previously talked about him this year because we covered My, My Darling Clementine this year, and which oh. is awesome. Man. Talk yeah. about my um, favorite fucking movie, period. Yes, spoiler <laughs> alert, that was on my site. So. <laughs> I tell you, yeah. Good movie. Um, and, but he's also in uh, I Wake Up Screaming as well, which I watched not that long ago with Laird Kreger from Hangover Square, which he's really good in his, uh, as well. Um, but those, but, uh, those two characters were close family friends and one's, you know, one's a cop and one's a crook and mixed up into all of this is, uh, Martin's fears that, uh, Candela, the, the police officer is going to, uh, pursue and implicate his girlfriend, Tina played by Deborah page and he essentially just wants to protect her from all of the sort of criminal activity that he's been involved in and he spends basically one very long day and night uh trying to both recover and escape and get away with her and also find out who the hell did the giant uh (laughs) jewel thievery that uh they are trying to pin on him he's dealing with like three different issues all at the same time (laughs) yeah And uh, I really like that quality about this film, I'll say off the start, because for for one, what I was kind of getting at when I was talking about Christmas holiday was that I was I was sitting here going and I and I, I see why they chose it. But the you know, the the framing device and the structure of it, uh, while leaning more into the emotion, I thought was sacrificing some of the sort of minute situation perversity that it could have mined out of it and i have the opposite problem with this movie which is that the whole movie is the situational perversity basically from the beginning uh, literally until it ends it is just like like it, it does have a very broad sort of like moralizing noir sort of community aspect to it about leading a life of crime and you know why that's bad obviously um but it, it's so amazing at tracing the the ground level suspense desperation of this character that I just was like engrossed with this one basically front to back. And as I mentioned, it reminded me of the film night and the city actually with Richard Widmark, because that's also uh, a noir about uh, this, this version of the character is more suave than slimy, but it, you know, it's also about a character who basically uses every single thing and person in his vicinity to basically try and uh, get a leg up. And uh, it's, it's pretty grim and pretty tragic stuff. I mean, I love that this movie starts with a rope-a-dope, like you're, 
the movie starts essentially with Richard Kahn uh, in a it looks like a deathbed. Like mm-hmm. yes. you, you think he's in a hospital and you're like, oh, no, they're about to lose their son or their, their husband or something like that. And it's only yeah. about like maybe two minutes in where you find out, no, this is a criminal. He just got shot six times in the leg uh, while after killing a cop. Um, so, and I think that speaks to his, again, Sionimek's general feeling is that like you start off with this belief in something, but it's almost immediately tossed aside and we're in the world of guilt and alienation. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I loved the fact that this one just dropped you straight into the situation. And it has a little bit of history that they kind of dole out throughout the film. But, it like, they, they start you off, like, Martin Rome, he is in the hospital bed. And they literally have the nurse, like, giving you the rundown. He's, like, age 29, appendix removed four years ago, knife scar on his shoulder, blood type A. And they're like, okay, well, this is a little bit too much information. Like, what are you talking about? She, they, I think <laughs> at one point they, they crack a joke because she's just like, no further record. And like, what do you mean no further record? This guy's a fucking criminal. She's like, medical record, sir. You know, no further medical record. That's it. But yeah, so he's he's in the hospital having shot his way out of an altercation with a cop and he is severely injured. His girlfriend, Tina, is like already crying at his bed being like, what have you done? Like, we have no future together. Like, 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 and this is like the opening scene. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they're starting yes, at like 100. <laughs> um and then you have the lawyer Niles showing up to see to see him and being like, you know, like he is representing the client who's of, of a jewel thief who, you know, they they're like, OK, well, this guy is already going to basically get the chair for killing a cop. So why don't we also, you know, why don't we not put that to waste? Why don't we also get him, you know, confessing to this crime as well? An even bigger job that his client Whitey Leggett committed, including, by the way, in his crime, torturing an old lady for her jewelry. Uh, to well, which Mark What what's yeah. the worst possible crime you could do? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> torturing old ladies. Let's just <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is so funny because Martin, Mar- like, even in his like, you know, like barely alive like stupor, he's j- he's like, go fry. Like, I am not gonna say that I did that. Like, that's fucked up. Why would I ever do that? Yeah. Um, Ten grand? Are you kidding me, man? I and and, and I, I will say I love Richard Kant's performance in this, right? Because I mean, he's he's playing. It's very like he has a very hilarious character that he gets to play, yeah. where he is like a cartoon Italian American criminal, and also just like a general like noir smart aleck kind of character. Like he's like pretending to be asleep on the one detective and smirking at the other one, and you know, doing as he describes it like monkey business banter, where they're like, "Hey, hey, look at me! Is this your ring?" And he's like, "Yes, I." I I won it in a craps game. You you got the rest of my stuff in there somewhere? And he's like looking at her, he's being like, you know, what else you got in there? And meanwhile, they're saying, yeah, this ring belonged to a woman who was tortured to death for it, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he and he'll he hear that news. At, at, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, he also kind of has a similar trajectory to Gene Kelly's character in the sense Absolutely. that like, you, see, um, you see his charm. I will say that in this, they reveal a lot more in between where it's like you know he's he tries to strangle the lawyer that comes in and like you know he's he, yeah. he's he's more willing right away to do what he needs to do to escape and and uh and get away with what he's done but um there is like a sense of humor that his character has and a sense of charm that 
slowly oh, yeah. as the film I, I goes. I love disappears. all the uh, Arriva Derchis that he does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's just the more desperate he gets, the more he kind of loses that entirely um, to the point where he even starts, you know, putting his own family at risk. And there's multiple times in this movie where he uh, you see the consequences of his actions right away. And like innocent people die that they never even bring back up just it's like in the moment because of an action he took and yeah i like that they don't dwell on any of those moments they just kind of have his character go through the motions and then eventually there's a a comeuppance well yeah everything gets hemmed off by the end like everything he wants to believe in is has to go away because i mean he he pulls a gun on his parents and his younger brother right. uh, <laughs> exactly. by the end of this uh, and like, and he sends his like the the by the we'll, we'll talk about it when we get to it. But like him yeah. asking his younger brother, go take all the money that our parents have because I gave it to them from them. I don't care what happens to them. Fuck them. Uh, yeah. Just bring it here so yeah. me and my girlfriend can get away from uh, this hell I've created in this city. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, and, and that's one of my favorite aspects of this is that it all it is all, you know, like you understand on a like a logistics level s- some of the choices that he's making in terms of like just trying to squirm his way out of a negative situation. Yeah. But it's one of those things where every single thing that he does triggers something else. And it, it is just like this constant sort of self-perpetuating spiral of just destruction. And mm-hmm. I and, and I found that such rich material for Cian Mac, who in my opinion he's so good at suspense and on the run kind of like the noir thrills required of him to shoot here there's one section in this which we'll get to but like blew my mind because it's basically three set pieces back to back to back uh it's a prison escape an insanely brutal office interrogation and murder and then a game of apartment hide and seek with his childhood friend who's a cop looking for him and each one of these is a completely different stylized set piece that he shoots differently and he does incredibly well and it's so engrossing that i actually find you do just inherently or i guess maybe implicitly kind of sympathize with oh how's he going to get out of this like what decisions is he going to make like like so you you're you're very sort of uh, inclined to think that way, I think, as just someone who's used to watching thrillers or who gets, you know, sort of moved by the intensity of what you're watching. But the thing that's so amazing and complicated about this is how it then incriminates that. And it goes, well, by stacking, um, you know, uh, all of these sort of violent situations and how he chooses to escape them, he's just leaving trails and trails of broken lives and terrible, you know, situations for, for worse people that, you know, cause like in the moment you don't immediately go, this guy's a terrible guy. He doesn't right. care about anyone. He's not interested in anything. And then by the time you hit the end, you're like, oh yeah, no, he is. He probably, he is a terrible guy. Yeah, actually. They I present don't think him he... as like wrong place, wrong time kind of guy. And then you quickly learn just the more actions he takes that all of this has been based on his own decision-making that has been horrible and selfish uh, even when he's claiming to love the people that he's using, because um, that's all he seems to ever do. Like the only one that you get a glimpse of, maybe there's a sense of love there is with Tina, uh, but there's not there's not really any scenes with her besides the beginning and the end. Um, mm-hmm. And then by that point, you know, she's kind of realizing exactly who is in front of her. Uh, but there, there's still, I think the reason I guess you, you feel that he might have a genuine love for her without using her too much is, um, that 
even in his most desperate and alone state, he's still asking her to come with him. But there's still that hint of like, it's probably just for his own support. Well, and, 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 and he's genuinely kind of like he's put her in the position that she's in. But yeah. he is in the in the beginning as parts of the film. He's genuinely worried about her. Like there oh, is this yeah. part yes. where, yeah. you know, like he's he's trying to charm the nurse into helping her like evade the cops. And, mm-hmm. you know, like when that when the, the lawyer comes in. Because you were mentioning the part he where he like goes left. to like strangle the lawyer, right? But the, the the reason he tries to strangle the lawyer is because of this really dark thing that he says to him, where he's just like, you know, you know, like he's he's playing, you know, he has equal footing with this guy, and he's trying to make a deal with him. And the you know the, the lawyer is saying, look, you're gonna get the electric chair for killing a cop. How about instead we give you ten thousand dollars, we get you prison time for you to confess to this to this other robbery and then bam you're not dead you have money you're gonna get out at some point and you know so he thinks that you know obviously he's negotiating with him and when he basically says like no i'm not gonna do that i can i think i can get a better deal um he says well maybe if we worked on your girl for a few days she wouldn't uh remember maybe she wouldn't look the same maybe you wouldn't even recognize her and then and the the great camera movement there too where like he's on the like the way that scene is shot is very stagey until the intense point of view close-ups of like him looking up uh like upside down on while on his bed and then reaching for him with his hands and everything like that so it's it's one of those things where like again you like you you totally see why he would negotiate trying to negotiate the deal that he's trying to get but at the same time he's putting her in danger by doing that right which also you know uh upsets him which then motivates basically the rest of what he de- decides to do in the film, even though we can, we do get slowly doled out information that he's been making decisions like this on like a minute level for so long that it's already had kind of tragic consequences. Like the whole history with yeah. Candela who oh, yeah. like Candela fucking hates him. He's like, dude, we used to be childhood friends. We come from the same poor, you know, Italian American uh, neighborhood. (laughs) And, you know, like I, I'm not, you know, throwing other people's lives away so that I can have a couple extra hundred bucks to blow on a, on a lady. (laughs) What are you talking about? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing with Tina, I think you could even make the argument that like the thing that Tina gives him, at least in the beginning, he, it gives him an in for the nurse gives nurse uh, a story and she is like, okay, I'm one over. I'll do something for you or I'll get close enough to you that I, you can get a pen and a paper or whatever you need to get out of here. I think like when it starts as he, like it begins as a survival tactic, but at a certain point, and I would say it's probably around where uh, a, a spoiler alert, uh, mature gets shot. Um, mm-hmm. That it, it, that you've gotten away. You have survived. Yeah, yeah. And then it kind of reveals that that wasn't really a survival tactic. That was a manipulation tactic. That was constant, mm-hmm. constant, constant manipulation. That's all he knows yeah. how to do. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's, th- that's what I think is so brilliant about the, the, uh, the way it molds like that is because you are with him in the beginning, and that's because you think this is all being done in severity. Like, he, he, it's in reaction yeah. To something really big happening in his life that he has to get out of, but then you, what, by the end, you realize, no, his mother was right. He he does not love anybody by himself. It just, it's not about anything else but him getting to have and like having a girl go with you out of town is another thing for yourself. And right. He's 
he doesn't show anything with Tina because that would suggest he has he has an actual real connection with her. The fact that she bookmarks it just kind of says that she was the goal. Yeah. And that's it. And Candela, I think, even mentions that in the in the final scene, which we'll, of course, get to in more detail. But he's, he says something like, if you really loved her, like, why would you put her in this situation at all? Like, it, yeah. it, at, at a certain point, you need to realize where your life is. And if you loved her, you wouldn't let her be a part of this lifestyle because it's just un, like, you know, you're always on the go. You can't trust anybody that you're you just you're pretty much forced to. And it just comes natural to him as well. But to manipulate people and use people to survive. Um, and so there can't really even if you wanted there to be, there can't really be a lot of love there. It's it's just not really possible. No, it would feel fake. And another thing I love about the film is. The uh, uh, the understanding of uh, what bi- what um, what binds working class people, like they all want to get it over on the asshole who rules over them. So mm-hmm. he is able to like the way he gets out of the ho- uh, the the, uh, the hospital with the um, or what is it's a prison hospital, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's basically yeah. it's it's like it's the hospital ward of like a prison yes. or something like that. Like he's basically he's basically is doing a prison escape when he has a, a Hovi. What's in I never uh, Orvi. Orvi. Yes. Uh, and like the fact that he's just like, this is a criminal. He's like, you want to get out of here? Well, I just kind of want to get it over on this piece of shit lead better. And the thing is, <laughs> is when you realize like they, they say le- at the end, lead better gets let go because of how bad he fucks up in this. And, yeah. and, and you can tell, like, it's two things. It's not just that that uh, Orvi lets him out of the cell. It's also that the guy who um, is in the elevator when he's trying to get escape is like, Ledbetter is like, wait for a minute. I'm just going to go get something. He's like, fuck this guy. He's a pain in the ass. He's like, yeah, the yeah. idea, like, there's a certain uh, a language and a certain, like, common feeling that I'm sure, uh, uh, Kant feels, but in truth is just something again, he's manipulating. He knows the world and he can be like, oh yeah, you want to get over on that guy? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll help me. Help me very well. Your life is probably, you're going to be in here for another like 15 years. I don't know what the sentence he gets is after this, but like, yeah, like again, like ignoring all the periphery. My life is in a vacuum. It's just about me. Yeah, I also like that. Um, just speaking on that kind of that escape part with the with the keys, just on a smaller detail. Um, there's a couple times where that guard specifically says that he forgot his keys. I think that's where also the um, the trustee shows him how to unlock the door and all of that. And so just to connect that later on to the the actual escape, and it's kind of like a like a real suspenseful moment because he thinks that that cop is the only one that has seen his face and will recognize him. But it happens that he's just a forgetful asshole. And the, and like you said, <laughs> the elevator guy doesn't even really like him and is tired of his shit. So yep. they just, he gets away with it in that sense. Um, and I, I, I like that they have these small little details that set up those, those moments and just, you know, they just make them uh, a little bit more um, impactful. And it, it, it feels like it's, it's this kind of, really well-tuned machine I, I, yeah well, it, well and, and it, it goes back to to one of uh candela one of candela's many 
monologues or maybe not monologues, but, you know, speeches that he gets to give because it is he is a very sort of like moralizing cop character yeah. to the to the criminal. And there's there's one there, there's a couple that are quite good. But the the one that speaks to what Chris was talking about is the one where he's uh, trying to explain to him that, you know, like your brother, Tony, is also going to get into a life of crime. He idolizes you. He's following you down this path. And, you know, like it like obviously it's it's a the, the destination is is not a great one, but he he brings up the idea of you know the sort of uh everyone starts on kind of like a baseline and all you're doing by doing what you're doing and being like yeah i'm gonna go to florida i'm gonna bet on the horses i'm gonna buy nice things and hang out with the pretty girls and no no cheap depressing rooms and you know empty stomachs for me unlike you on a cop salary of 90 dollars a week or whatever and there's a part where candela gets to go like you know i've heard this speech from pool room hot shots like you <laughs> since I was 10 years old, you know, get hip, only suckers work. Don't be a square. And the, the big line is let the old man get the calluses digging the ditch, you know, yeah. like not me, let someone else. That's, that's for somebody else to do that. And, and I do like that. He goes, you know, you're breaking, there's a sarcastic, uh, you're breaking my heart, Marty, you know, <laughs> talking about your, you know, how, how terrible it must be to, to have to work like everybody else. And then, he he eventually goes this lifestyle that you have clearly chosen intentionally that is destructive do you think that it is worth the chair and marty just gets like these great lines where he's just like i don't know i haven't tried yet mm. you know <laughs> <laughs> and, and then and then candela's like well maybe you might like it you'll be the center of attention you know like that it's 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 a it's it's a pretty clever little movie in that way and then yeah. to have that sort of i guess i guess what you would call this the sort of moral battle that these two characters are waging that's based on their their history and and the community to have that then expressed through these just incredible suspense sequences cuz we should get to the 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 main ones that take place in the middle here which i was just blown away by i didn't actually go back and check i wanted to see how long this lasts for because like i was actually just like how did he get one after the other and each one is just incredible mm-hmm. cuz we we've talked about it already the the prison escape one where he gets a trustee to uh, uh fake having a visitor pass at the front desk that's uh for his brother so then he you know he he helps him get get his key and get out of his cell get into this clothes that basically make him look like a detective or something and then have him walk uh up and say his brother's name and get his pass and then jamie was talking about the bit where uh, they're getting into the elevator and he thinks, oh my God, this guy who's already seen me in here might be getting into the elevator. But the guy actually, instead, he's just like, well, I'm not waiting for the stupid guy. who forgot his keys. We're all going down. But my favorite aspect is that slow limp walk down the long shot of the hallway that, that he takes. Oh, yeah. Um, and then he's even and, stopped and, by the big like cart of things or whatever. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's so well shot and like blocked and lit. Like everything about how... It's just, it's such a slow walk. You're like, yeah. dude, he's not going to make it. Someone's going to come around that corner and stop him and be like, hey, love, hey, what's up, buddy? <laughs> I love how he stands out so much, too. Like, everybody does have a very casual walk. And, and just as you're focused on him with everybody else surrounding him, he really just does look like a guy trying his best to hide and, and just, like, trying to, you know, squish his face into his trench coat and the fedora and everything like that. Like, um, it ends up being a very smooth thing because it's almost like people don't, really pay attention it's almost less his skills and more just pure dumb luck that no one really wants to do their job at during the day like even the 
even the cop that takes his ticket isn't really paying attention or whatever. He just like grabs the ticket, stamps it or whatever, and gives it back to him and doesn't even make eye contact with him. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it just, it, it does feel kind of almost like he lucked out in that situation. And I, I like that aspect of it a lot. And I don't think they, he doesn't, uh, Siamak doesn't uh, overplay any of these moments. Like, yes, you would think any other director would probably put like a, a nervous score on this or something. It's pr- it's 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 played very soberly, and a lot of it is on Kant's yeah. performance and and the limp and the face and all that stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and the space, of course. But uh, what I, I I'm always struck by how long this sequence is because they do yes. they do let him do all the walking and the it's right. It, it, it's how, it's kind of mundane, like yes. like it's kind of like yeah. he's he's got a he like the actual work that he has to put in and the thought process and the like the waiting and like it's it, it it's a very unglamorous view of what it is that a criminal does. Yeah, yeah, like Absolutely. escaping prison. When you just say that, you're thinking like you know he's going under the pipe. He's uh, this is the most intense thing ever. This <laughs> yeah. is the great escape. You know, and like he's just this is, you know like, casually walk out there as best he can. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, like I like I really love that, and and it carries over into the other sequences, like like the same with the sequence where he pushes his way into Niles's office to mm. you know, to, which he does, making it seem like he's like now going to take his deal, having escaped prison. But obviously, Niles goes, well, that was the deal, you know, like when you hadn't broken the law again by escaping prison. So you know, like now we're going to be negotiating a different deal, thinking that you know once again he's operating uh, at at sort of in good faith, I guess. Which which is a bad move by on Niles's part because he's not. He literally whips out a knife and makes him reveal the jewels from the job are in his safe, and you know, like holds holds him there and is trying to get more information about this job that he wants him to confess to. And one of my favorite details is partway through the scene, his secretary is sort of like listening into mm. the conversation that's happening inside the office and briefly when his drawer opens up there's a gun revealed very casually just sitting in the drawer and you go oh well, that's not good that <laughs> that's going to introduce some problems into this scene and eventually it does get pulled out and fired um by niles uh, and in he accidentally shoots his own secretary through his office door which then results in marty just fucking shanking this dude to death and throwing him into his chair. Yeah, and, and they even it, have a and, shot of like his body dropping from the the um, chair afterwards, like after yeah. the fact, and just focusing on the the limpless body there. It's just like it's crazy. Yeah, that part's actually distressing because the 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 thing that's interesting is that it's it's the shot is on his dead body in the chair and it actually pans over to the jewels where he's putting the jewels into his bag and he's being like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna use these to negotiate my way out of here. I'm gonna have to make a deal with somebody else because obviously this has gone wrong. Um, and then uh, what happens is you actually hear his body fall off the chair and onto the floor and the camera doesn't see it so the camera actually pans back and i don't know if that was like something they planned or if it was just the guy fell and they were like roll move it it. go go capture it or whatever but but regardless all of that is scored to as chris put it like nothing like it's the sounds of the room it's his breathing it's the creak of the chair flipping through the objects which makes the death of the secretary just so it's it's almost sadder that way because he just moves on. Like he, there's no focus yep. on the body. It's just like she actually. We never learn anything killed. about her. No, nope. nothing. She's just a body. He steps over. I don't even think there's a scene where the cops like find her after. It's just a nope. dead body based on the consequences that of the actions that he's taken. 
and it's just like yep. and he chooses and it's it's a it, they don't accent it in the film whatsoever but i think that's on purpose because it's basically saying like he's completely willing to move on from that and not think about it whatsoever oh, absolutely and i it, it's funny because the scene before this uh underlines that fact because mm-hmm. you go into the cigar store uh uh with uh candela and uh his partners and uh tony the younger brother shows up is goes on the phone and they're all ready to like candela gets out of there because he's like he knows my face i can't be here right now weirdly very similar to how uh uh cunt uh marty uh escaped the uh hospital like Mm. i'm worried about him seeing my face he knows my face uh and a family uh, like not even a family thing like a nationalism thing speaking italian uh is what uh, is used for criminal purposes essentially like the the way he gets out of anybody getting the information that is being overheard on the phone call is because they're speaking italian to one another and like you at once, that is an intimate gesture between two brothers, but it's also something that Marty, Marty Rome can use to fucking get away, to, to yep. fucking mm-hmm. get it over on people. Like it, it, it's something, again, that he's using. He, it, it, and, and he requires think, Tony to do that because yes. the others wouldn't speak Italian. Yeah. Yeah. And, Mar- and his parents would not do this shit. Like right. Tony's right. young. Tony's young and he will do this. And he looks up to he him. He worships like, Martin. Yes, and like he has this uh, the, the 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 reputation that uh, Rome has around the place, he wants that very badly, uh, and I think they play this like the the brother the little brother character is so especially at the in in the last couple of scenes so important, uh, yeah. and they oh, yeah. I I don't think it's it's amazing that they don't over they they put him in just enough for those last mm. scenes to work. Uh, Mm-hmm. because it is part of the family unit. And I mean, you don't see much of, I mean, you see almost none of his father uh, and you see a good amount with his mother, but like, yeah, the father's completely given up on him and yeah. entirely. The mother seems to have still a hint of like, well, maybe he's the good boy that I raised. Maybe I can get him. He back. used to be so sweet, so smart. He, <laughs> you know, he, 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 he sent us money, you know, yep. when, when he started, you like, like a good son does. Yeah. And then I love that. Candela's like, well, did you ever ask him where the money came from? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, let's think about it for a second. And then, yeah, like that, that, like, that's the other, that's the third uh, set piece that I was referring to is the one where he does go home to his, to uh, his mother's apartment where you know the the mother finally does sit down and she kind of does see some of the collateral damage and how Tony is following in his footsteps and goes like why do you do things like this like why why are you killing people and he's trying to make excuses where he's like you know well you know I the cop cornered me it was self defense I had to kill my way out and then we're like well why did you have to kill this lawyer and his secretary like why are you killing all of these very you know like and and he does get like the line that kind of sums up the movie which is. I don't know, mama, you get going on something like this and you can't stop. Yeah. And that was it. And, and, and if you, and, and what I love spinning. is that, yeah, and well, in my favorite aspect is that like, I think Steve Mac as a director, like totally lives up to that experience where he just like the movie is constantly moving and not stopping. The guy is just on the run all the time and you're so locked into his decision-making and the process of it. And like, even when they're sitting down and having this conversation where they're laying out for you that that's what's happening. Um, 
you know, like another set piece just starts up like this amazing tracking shot through the apartment as he's hiding. And Tony um, is uh, uh, cutting his bandages off. But Candela arrives at the apartment. And oh, my God, that shot of the his shadow and his hat on the door and, you know, his mother being like, OK, well, I can't let him in through this door because it'll let him into the kitchen, which is close to the bedroom that he's in. So I will actually direct him to this side. So she literally moves to the uh, three rooms over, goes to the other door down the hallway and waves him down this way. And is like, come on over here. Like, I'll greet you. Come on in this way. Yeah. And Candela immediately sees through it. He's just like, well, no, we're something smells good in the kitchen. I'm going to go to the kitchen. And she's trying to like be like, no, 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 don't go in there. And you're like, like even he's even getting his mother and his brother involved in the like the minute logistics of how to cover for him and how to hide him and you know how to get involved criminally in 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 what's happening here and at a certain point candela just breaks the facade because he can tell you can feel like right away that she's behaving differently than she did in the in the previous scene and he says i'm sorry mama but i gotta look around at just as marty bursts into the room in the background with a gun and you get like a little bit of a showdown between them once again where you know uh he gets to monologue a bit to tony where he's like is this your hero tony he breaks out of jail and he fools the cops and he talks big with a gun in his hand sure but look at him leg shot full of holes fever going up no place to go no place to sleep it's just run 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 until he can't run anymore and where is he going to escape to like look at him he is a dead man yeah and you know he he lays that all out for him and it's like completely right i forgot to mention too yeah he's he's injured and feverish like again that's part of the limp that's part of he's like half a he's so exhausted and like as if he's about to pass out at any given moment but that doesn't stop him from making his uh his witty comebacks where he's like uh make an italian a cop and he's gotta make a speech oh man <laughs> i love that one <laughs> that's a great one <laughs> Yeah, and then he's just but, 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 like but, but the darkness and, and the set pieces just keep stacking literally until the end of the movie at this point yeah and this is also when he just starts using like you see him use person after person like he uses the well i guess it comes back when he used the nurse in the beginning um there's yep. that friend of his i believe the blonde friend i can't remember her name right now but he uses uh, brenda who's brenda. actually played by shelly winters, winters from night of the hunter oh, oh hell yeah the best Oh, so good. Yeah, she's great. Um, yeah. And puts a, he puts a, a doctor in kind of a, a bad situation because he feels like he could help him. But then also now he's an accomplice to whatever happened. Uh, and and you see God, that that sequence is nuts because I think that's the one you're talking about right, is the one where Brenda is the one helping him track down the girl who was involved um, with the heist. And so yeah. he's, he's called her in to help, help him do that because he's like passing out in the back of her car and, you know, he's so sleep deprived and feverish. He can hardly function. So she has to call an unlicensed doctor to attend to him in the back of the moving car. And one of my favorite details that kind of speaks to Chris's point too, about like how it gets like everyone involved on like a street level and sort of working class level is she to find this like uh doctor she needs to like go over into a or to, to get brandy for the doctor to disinfect his wounds she has to go to a bar where she has to deal with like a drunken harasser following her around and he and 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 this is just so that she can leave the car where he's being operated on surgically in the back of it to go get the alcohol and bring the alcohol back to the car and pay the doctor his extra two hundred dollars because he knows that he's doing a you know 
he he knows that he's breaking the law one right. by performing unlicensed surgery but also to a guy who's been shot so clearly is involved in some sort of criminal activity mm. um and just the way it keeps finding ways to complicate like the set pieces in sad ways like that like it's not that she's just She's already putting herself on the line to help him, already getting a doctor to break the law to help them. But she also has to deal with some guy just being an asshole to her while she's getting, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, brandy to All just, I you know, do is help. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just hammer drunk. <laughs> yeah. And the way that that doctor is eventually found and made to confess uh, by specifically targeting, by the Ugh. way, foreign doctors and seeing which one of them have cash in their wallets <laughs> yeah. and sending him to jail despite knowing that it's going to like hurt his wife at home and everything. Like, it's just, it's so ble- like, and that's Candela who does that. Yeah. Like, that's bleak stuff. Well, I yeah, think like, that's, you knew it was against the law if you're going to jail. Well, that I, I think that's to, to a certain degree, Sean Mac is being like, Candela ain't great either. The police aren't great either. Yeah. This yeah. Is, they, they do their own things. They don't look away when they should. They don't really have a moral backbone either at the end of the day. They are also just ch- chasing the rush. Like you can, yeah. I can almost see a, a, a heat comparison here in a way uh, between these two. Um, and I, I even, I mean, fuck it. Like it would be hilarious having to watch Jeremy Piven do a surgery in the back of a car rather than in a, a vet's office <laughs> yeah. or dentist's office or wherever he was. Um, but the, the thing that I, I, because this, and I think the last shot really does under, there's a chilling effect to that last shot uh, of Tony and him in the car uh, with the police banner over it. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it, it strikes me as something that, I mean, Candela from this moment on, I mean, like, the next whole part is when he goes to uh, the Swedish masseuse Rose, right? And um, great sequence too. Unbelievable! <laughs> this fucking I when this starts and uh, I forget the uh, I don't have the actress's name right here, but she like knocks this so out of the park. Uh, Hope Emerson is her name. She should be in every movie. She's probably yeah, she's dead great. now, but like <laughs> she's uh, awesome. She is so goddamn good in this in these scenes and it's threatening. <laughs> yes. And and to like a, a person that we know now as a brutal like backstabbing bastard like yeah, she's holding her own her. yeah really like real and she's like towering over him um, yeah. and I I'm so struck by just like how the criminal world works in this movie where they don't they're not trying to uh, show it as a boys club they're trying to show it as a real like business this involves yeah. everybody. Um, on both mm-hmm. sides, there, there's a whole business in ending this, and there's a whole business on keeping this going. Uh, and uh, this scene, I mean, specifically, just like puts it all together for me. Yeah, yeah, like the way that he goes to her, and he's now negotiating lower and lower deals with people because he was originally going to get ten thousand yep. dollars from Niles. Now he's saying, okay, how about five thousand dollars and a car and a good night's sleep? You know, <laughs> like that's the, that, that's I'll, I'll take that at that point in exchange for all of these jewels and um, the way that they're feeling each other out because they are both very brutal 
players at that point who know the game well. And she, you know, sits him down is like, have a good night's sleep. And she starts giving, you know, she's using her powerful masseuse hands to relax him seemingly. <laughs> but then she threatens in the way, the way that she moves them to strangle him. And she, and, and it's as she's delivering this monologue about how, you know, how her masseuse hands have been wasted so many years on fat old women who think that the jewels they collect over the course of their lives make them beautiful. And then they fight to keep them like they fight the years that make them ugly. And I was like, brother, I think if there's someone in this film who strangled an old woman to death for her jewelry, I think she's got her hands around your neck like right (laughs) now. And you can see him like putting the pieces together. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she, it, but that, but like, just as you were saying that, uh, uh, the, 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 the line like really like sums up everything about it. I think this, the, her going from the massage to the stranglehold is like yes. in an image, exactly what he's going through in it and what the audience yes. is going through too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and I, I like very much that Walter Hills, the driver style, he kept the jewels at the subway station locker. So as a result, you know, he's like, well, you know, I don't life, have the money. Yeah, yeah, he's like, if you strangle me, you're not going to get any of your shit because he just he obviously everything just keeps escalating through the whole movie. And then he, he goes, OK, well, now she's going to go to the subway station locker to get her jewels. And so he calls in. He double crosses her to call the cops. And I love when he calls Candela and he's just like, I, I have the like the woman that you're looking for. She's going to be here at this time. And like he's he's calling it in like he's like a good Samaritan and not that like, you know, he's eliminating a dangerous you know, criminal operator who, you know, he doesn't want to have to, yeah, he doesn't want to have to, you know, pay essentially. And he wants to double cross her as well. So again, it's, it's one of those things where he's putting on this front of I'm doing a a general good, but you know, only if it specifically helps me um, get out of this sort of chaotic situation that I'm in, which gets increasingly chaotic as she is a little bit smarter than he realizes. And she's like, no, 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 you're coming to the locker with me. And it leads (laughs) into this whole fucking like crazy shootout situation where, you know, she goes to actually shoot Rome and accidentally hits Candela while he's hopping over the turnstile in like this crowd mishap where he escapes. And and once again, second or third time that someone's been shot because of him. Yeah, and, 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 and he's so relieved when it's like, oh, she just shot Candela. And now and now now she's been captured. Like I'm I'm safe now. Now I everybody. just have to go get Tina. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, by by this point, he's left such a like a just an openly public wake of destruction that Tina goes I'm not running away with you. Like what the, like you functionally, like maybe not in the most literal sense, but functionally you've become a serial killer over the course of this (laughs) film. Like you've ruined the lives of at least four or five different people that you do who I think it's Candela puts it that you didn't forget about them. Uh, you, you, uh, didn't just brush them aside. You used them like you use your own family and he's going to use, uh, you know, Tina as well. Yeah. Like the moment right before he goes into the church, it's when he tells Tony to go steal the remainder of the money that they have. And uh, yeah. And so it's just like like that's the thing that we see before he goes into the church with Tina and, and he starts his spiel about like, you know, loving her. And it's he's she's her his happiness. And, you know, she needs to come with him and all of that. And, you know, you kind of like a little part of him probably believes it even himself. But it's definitely at this point, you've just you've seen too much of this character. You know exactly where it will lead, even if he doesn't think that's where it will lead. 
Well, yeah, and that this yeah. is all happening in a church doesn't help his case. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's like I kind of think that's why she ultimately says no is because she does seem generally moved by the good of the world. Uh, yeah. And she's like, I can't do that. I, I, I'm in I'm in God's eye right here. I can't say yes to you, buddy. And then, you know, <laughs> yeah. he pass him off to Candela. Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, you then think, oh, he's been captured by Candela. The movie's over, and it even has one more, like, like mean gesture left in it, which is that he notices that Candela is bleeding and 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 weak, and is like, oh, this dude can't take me in. He's he's fucking injured. So he yeah. literally pushes the, him over and is like, you know, decides he's going to make his run for it. Just such like a pathetic, you know, sort of like last gesture to pull off. Like, yeah, of course I'm, I'm going to get away with this. Yeah. And then what's wild too, like with Candela, we were talking about, I mean, he definitely has the most, um, like empathy towards, uh, the people that he's working with just because he grew up in the neighborhood and he knows the family and everything like that. But like we said, we, we start to see a little bit of that. I don't know if it's like the power he's gained from the force that kind of can corrupt somebody um, because watching him, even after we've seen what Martin does, watching him take out the gun and just shoot him in the back as he's walking away or running away, uh, just still feels dirty. And it just feels like, just like it just feels very, it, it's desperate. It's as desperate as Martin Rome is essentially. It's um, also something that I feel is similar in uh, Christmas holiday. It's very icy. It's very yeah. removed. Like, he just knows that this is the fact that like uh, Marty is walking away from him so slowly because of the bum leg. Uh, like he's and, so confident that, too that yeah. he doesn't have to necessarily bolt out of there at this point. No. And yeah, and I mean, and, and Candela is like near death, laying on and just yeah. barely with like not even like in a like heroic last thing, but just like literally like very slowly. Ugh, ugh. Mm-hmm. and then shoots this guy dead uh from yeah, very well, far well, away the other dark detail i don't know if if you guys clocked it but the, that that scene earlier it really stands out when you're watching this scene of candela being held at gunpoint by marty and he goes you know like oh you think i won't pull the trigger and he's like make your move and he makes all these various moves at the table and he doesn't do it so marty doesn't want to shoot kendall he doesn't want to shoot his his friend and that he doesn't want to like he causes a lot of destruction but he sort of he makes psychological excuses for it by being well it's part of the larger contraption i'm involved in i haven't actually done it and Candela is the one who actually makes the choice to kill him. And you can feel that Marty goes, well, I wouldn't shoot him. He wouldn't shoot me. Yeah. And no, he, he just absolutely shoots him down. And it's this incredible shot where, you know, like you just get the slick uh, lighting on the streets and you just hear like this, this lone scream that you're, it's disembodied. You're not even sure where it came from of, of, of his body just lying there on the street. And then Tony shows up and finds his brother dead and breaks down and, and shows up being like, I couldn't steal from our parents. Like I was going to come to disappoint him anyway. Like even if this had went perfectly and he got Tina, he wouldn't have had money to bring him to, uh, to escape. So yeah. it just, it, it's another layer of tragedy anyway, that he probably didn't even have to shoot him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Mark- <laughs> that he, he wasn't, he, he wasn't getting away, you know, like that was that. Oh yeah. That wasn't uh, going to happen. I don't think. I also like the yeah. detail that Marty, like he just, he, he was so full of like, he, he just had to keep going that they have the little moment where he takes out the switchblade uh, sits up for a second and then just collapses dead. Like it's like he had that like one last thing where he's like, no, I'm not going out. I'm escaping the city. 
um, and just then dies. And you, you get that sad moment with Tony, of course. But then there's also that moment in the church right before where the, and uh, Candela has some sweet lines, honestly, where it's just like, uh, I've never had to kill a man in my life, but I'll get you call my bluff. And he's like right in the middle of church and everything like that. Um, and he says yeah. something like, which like you wouldn't kill a man in a church. And he's like, I think I'd be forgiven this time. <laughs> You're like, holy <laughs> shit. He's like, he's thinking that God is on his side on this death here. Um, and just the, I guess the, it kind of relates to what you were saying where Marty's like, uh, like he wouldn't shoot me. He wouldn't do that. So when he says like, call my bluff and then he doesn't do it initially, but then does it in the desperate moment at the end. Um, that kind of connects a little bit too. And yeah, I think, I think, uh, it's just really strong writing and, and great suspense sequences. And it's a really good movie. <laughs> I mean, and it ends with, uh, Candela bringing Tony into the back of a police car. And it, and the end is them in the back window framed with the police logo over it. And this to me, yeah. like, this is so a chilling, but be like such a like almost rhapsodic image to uh, end this on because uh, you could I mean you could suggest that both of them are criminals like Candela right, like and Tony in the back yeah that, that's one sure. way of putting it but the other and the more interesting part to me is suggesting that all of this has pushed Tony maybe it, he it might have pushed him more towards wanting to be a cop. And the way mm-hmm. that they've uh, uh, Sion Mech has uh, depicted being a cop is someone who is, you know, interested in justice and all this, but at the end of the day, wants to kill the bad guy. Doesn't want to put him yeah. away. Wants to kill him. Wants him to be eliminated. Um, and you could argue, like maybe uh, if uh, Marty wasn't such a such a bastard, maybe he would not feel that way. But. To me, it just it. Marty does like to rub uh, rub salt in the wounds a, a little, little bit, bit with, with the, the bleach to too, yeah. <laughs> Art the clown style. Um, yeah. The so like I mean to me that yeah. Speaking of a bonus transmission, we'll be talking about Terrifier too oh, soon. Jesus. Look forward to that. <laughs> um, I'm gonna skip that one. I, I, I listen every week, but uh, that one I'm gonna miss. I, I hate <laughs> that movie. Um, but like the thing with uh, the thing with that guy, it it, it, it to me. It, it speaks to what is also happening with uh, uh, Marty in like that he has pushed family away and has gone completely into crime. Well, what happened with Tony here is that he's being pushed completely from his family into the cops. And the future is either he's going to be an inmate or he's going to be part of this force that, uh, you know, uh, of course, the last couple of decades have shown they've really cleaned up their act. But at the time, the NYPD <laughs> were not the greatest bunch of guys. Um, uh, and to me, Siad Mac is very pointedly telling you that, like, he's not, this is, he's not like the cops are the good guy. I, I would, well, yeah, well, well I was yeah. going to say, and, and what, and what's the end point that he also shoots his friends, exactly. um, down, you know, yeah. like, it's like, oh, great. Yeah, what a like great becoming option. Becoming Candela <laughs> is maybe the better option between becoming Martin, but it still feels like he's, he's going to be in just the same the same battle, you know, the same. Uh, yeah, well, and, and and Candela, as we saw, is, is implicated like that. The, the person yeah. oh, I yeah. feel the worst for watching this movie is that doctor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For just trying to help a guy out, like not really knowing the situation and then just gets put in prison. 
Yeah. Yeah, and, and and he takes a little bit of extra money because because it's bullshit that he's a foreign he, he because he's technically unlicensed yep. even though he is a trained professional in Europe, but they're being like, right. yeah, so you you can't perform this you know what you're good at legally, and we're so we're going to criminalize your skill for just you specifically, and then when we need to target a criminal and find out which of them got medical care. We're going to literally round up the foreign doctors and be like, okay, which of you got a little extra cash this week for your family? Because you're fucked. (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking you down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, And and, and so just to to throw in so much detail like that and like obviously like the the friend Brenda and the secretary who we don't even find out who she is. She just fucking gets shot by Niles by accident. You know, like to, to, to throw all of this around and be like, you know, to again do this in the way that because I overall like if we're maybe pivoting towards reductive rating round this was a very very solid four for me but I could see someone watching this and be like the community sort of morality tale heartstring tugging as I would describe it I think some people could find a bit much or a bit obvious or like you could look at it and be like I think I saw some people compare it to like a Kazan film or something like that where it's just like very very on the nose melodrama in that way but the thing that really struck me about it and what really got me into it is one that Seed Mac is so fucking good at one the the blocking and the tracking and the lighting of suspense sequences like I think this is what he's so amazing at and so to have a movie that is basically non-stop engrossing desperate ground level set pieces of this guy thinking through how am i going to get out of this and constantly escalating and also highlighting it in this very unglamorous mundane way that's that's kind of tough to watch at times as well like to do all of that all at once and still find so many details throughout to complicate and incriminate that process to be like look once again as an audience member you totally get that this guy is in a bad situation and you totally i think sympathize with his desire to be like well if i just like tell a white lie to like this guy i can get out of this and you know we'll like uh, life will be better on the other side of like this precise situation that i'm in Mm. but you stack enough of those up they get incredibly violent and dark and just start ruining so many lives around him. And I found that aspect of it, like surprisingly, I thought a little bit more subtle and a li- and I found that stuff more moving than just like, you know, the big speeches where Victor mature, who's good at the big speeches and everything. Oh, but yeah. like, I found it a little bit more, uh, I found that and the way that that built to be a lot more emotionally impactful than just him being like, you know, a, a life of crime doesn't pay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and yeah, so like that, that's for me what what totally kind of like, yeah, I think it's a perfect merging of of material and filmmaker in, in that department. And it was why I was really, really taken with it. So very solid for. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. This is a very easy for uh, I really enjoyed this. Um, I think the suspense sequences are awesome, even if they're, they they're like almost like we said, kind of mundane, like it really is just him almost lucking out a lot of the time. But then there's all these great escalations of consequences that he has to take because he's just, you know, he's, he's trying to survive. And because of that, he gets a lot of people either killed or sent to prison or hurt in some way. Um, and he just becomes less and less of that charming character you kind of see in the beginning and maybe the one that Tina fell in love with. Um, yeah, man, th- this is a movie that makes you feel bad for a slimy lawyer whose corpse falls out of a chair. Right, like it's yeah. a tiny detail to include, but like 
it's a, it's an effort like and it, it it's impressive that you like that character is so disgusting and you hate him and you yeah. feel bad in that moment when he dies it doesn't feel like a good thing that it that that happens so yeah it feels really um like just like a very sticky situation like it, you never see a, a moment with that lawyer character where he comes off as a nice or or kind of person that would help the, your neighbor or anything like that he's very much selfish for himself kind of like martin in a sense but just the way he goes out is so cold and the way a lot of people go out in this is just incredibly cold and never emphasize like it never uh focuses on it they just he you keep moving on with martin and he has no moments of stopping and and mourning or at least realizing what he's done to these strangers or anything like that um, and, uh, with, with Candela, I like that he starts off as a very like morally correct, I guess, um, cop and, and kind of a almost friend to the family and to the neighborhood. Um, and just as he grows more desperate, similar to what Rome was going through, he just starts to do things that seem corrupt and kind of maybe a little bit, he's using his power to his advantage in a way that I don't think feels good. Uh, and it gets a just it gets a little um, foggy by the end of it with his character. You still think that he is on the sense of he's trying to do the right thing, but when he shoots Martin in the back like that, it just feels dirty, and it just feels like there's something missing there. Um, and uh, yeah, I think this is great. And I do like there's this quote I saw just at the beginning of the wiki page because he does oh, yeah. have a lot of really great. Um, uh, live locations in New York, which I was surprised by. Like some of this. Oh yeah, I, for, I, for, I, for, I forgot yeah. to mention that because we, yeah. we we talked about that briefly um, when we were doing uh, with Jason Bailey. We talked about the window, the one oh, about yeah. the little boy yeah. who uh, witnesses a murder, uh, and that was I think I can't remember what year exactly that was it was i think it was 46 or 47 and that is considered one of the earliest noirs to shoot real on location uh new york city work instead of sets and studios and uh so this joins that as one of the earlier examples of that now that i well, uh which, yeah i forgot forgot to mention but there's some great new york city location where like especially that last bit where you get shot yeah. and they're on the 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 street and you can see the the lamps hitting it and everything it's beautiful yeah and then they have the shot of like the uh the subway um, tracks and all of that, like just really big yep. cityscapes, which is, it, it's awesome. It's really good. Or when I, I guess there's also the scene where it's the doctor, um, and his friend trying to help Martin. Um, and she, I think, it, I think it's, a, like on location, it, it might be a set, but they have this big tracking shot. That's like kind of up in the air. I think it's a crane shot of, them. Oh, with the, yeah, the, the one with her going to the bar to get the brandy. Yeah. yeah. So you just see all the people on the sidewalk and like the marquees in the background and all that. It's really, yeah. it's really awesome. But his quote here is, uh, I thought it was good, but it's not really my kind of film. I hate locations. There's so much you can't control. And he's, nope. it's kind of like the opposite <laughs> of the, philosophical the philosophy of larry cohen or something like that yes uh, so I, I just i liked that and i appreciated that um but it, to be honest it seems like even though he, he hated doing it uh and felt like he had a lack of control it there's some great shots in there so he he, he found a way that's for sure so yeah this was a yep. solid four i thought this was great and uh yeah yeah this would be a high four for me and i, I mean I'll underline all the stuff you guys said uh and it does make sense. I mean, he being the miserable person he was, like it makes sense that he's like, well, I can't control the city. I should be able to, but I can't. Sadly, yeah. <laughs> um, to me, this is one of his one of his best thematic ideas is deterioration. 
deterioration of mm-hmm. cities, deterioration of morals, deterioration of personal connections to people. Um, that's uh, key to uh, Christmas holiday as well. But to me, that this is front and center what this is about. Is about a friendship essentially uh, deteriorating all the way to enemies, like complete bloodthirsty enemies. Um, and the fact that it is so shambling and uh, 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 slow when it finally happens, like there's no, the climax isn't really like uh, 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 thrilling. It's just kind of happens. And that's kind of the sadness of it. And I think yeah. John Mac has a way of being able to locate that stuff. The way he doesn't use music uh, uh, it, when he doesn't really need it because he has a confidence to know that the tragedy is there. Uh, it's not, you don't have to underline it. You don't have to put exclamation points around it. It's there it, it, in the writing and the acting and where he puts the camera. Uh, and that I felt that in literally every scene of this movie, like he doesn't waste a shot either. Uh, all of them, it, it feels like compacted, I, I wouldn't take out a scene. I wouldn't put in a scene. Uh, it, to me, it strikes as just one of those movies where he is, he, I mean, again, like he's experimenting a little bit, right? Like the fact that he doesn't like locations. That he, like, I think Chris Cross is all like maybe like four or five locations maybe in Tops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to see him like playing with this, I mean, this was, I guess, his big experimental year because this was also the year Cobra Woman comes out and you guys should stop recording this and go watch that as soon as you're done. Um, <laughs> it is, it, it, I can't say it's a great movie, but it is one of the wildest uses of Technicolor I have ever seen. Like just absolutely bananas how that movie looks. And this to me is the one that is like, whereas Christmas holiday is just like my personal favorite. This is crystalline to me. This is everything that you could ever want from a Sion Mac movie is here and it's big and it's not, he's not trying to reduce uh, any of the uh, density of emotions or uh, the themes that he's playing with, nor is he trying to uh, evade the fact that it's a city movie. And now you get to feel that it's a city movie. Uh, I, I, the one I always go back to is the newsy uh, talking to uh, Candela about uh, Rome uh, in the beginning where he's like, Oh, do you think he's going to come in here? He's like, well, I'll make sure he comes in either way. And they're like, to me, that's just so telling of what's going to happen in that. I mean, yeah, I uh, solid high four. Uh, couldn't recommend it enough. Hell yeah. Well, I think that that is going to wrap it up for this week. That was Christmas Holiday from 1944, as well as Cry of the City from 1948. And that is the beginning of November. So thanks so much, Chris, for uh, joining us and for bringing these uh, films with you. Yeah. Uh, what's going on in... Uh we hate movies world. You got any more live shows going on? Uh, we have a few live shows coming up. Uh, hold on. Let me get this. <laughs> yeah, no problem. This is where we usually have people plug. And while he's doing that, I actually just went and saw them do a live show here in Toronto where they covered saw four, a movie that I Hell obviously yeah. didn't remember very well until hearing them <laughs> describe it in detail. And I was like, yeah, I, I think that's what happened in that movie. Uh, but it was, it was, it was a very fun time. So if you get, if you guys live anywhere where Chris is about to say, I'm sure, uh, make sure to go check them out. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. We will be, uh, well, first, thank you, Josh. Thank you for coming period. <laughs> and just thank you for the compliments. Uh, November 14th, we'll be in Denver, Colorado covering war games. Uh, at Comedy Works, uh, 11, uh, November 15th, we'll be at Salt Lake City covering Fatal Attraction at Wise Guys. And November 17th, 
We'll be in Phoenix, Arizona, covering Universal Soldier at CB Live. Oh, Hell yeah. Um, so those are the Van Dam and Dolph. Yeah, I mean, show faves. we had to do it eventually. <laughs> I mean, all of our throats are going to be like sandpaper after doing all those accents. Uh, oh but my god that's going to be impression central it's for fans of impressions really going to be bad for my voice uh and and, and uh we're doing uh currently we're doing our uh, yearly we love movies month uh over on our uh on our show uh we're handling uh hannibal uh on our patreon the ridley scott movie uh and we're also uh handling a, a nightmare before christmas uh, as uh, uh, we we try to do uh, a yearly uh, thing, we we're, we're always doing movies that we're not particularly fond of, or movies we're mixed on. But this, we try to do big movies that we like, uh, and we're gonna have a couple big guests on for movies like Thief and Point Break. Uh, yeah. Patreon.com/slash We Hate Movies. Uh, go get there if you can. Yeah, check it out. Go see what the boys are doing over at the We Hate Movies. And if you haven't listened to it yet, I went on not that long ago and talked about Stone Cold on their show. Great episode. Yes. You guys you guys should go Best back movie. and listen to that one as well. We love uh, spreading the word of Stone Cold. I actually haven't checked out because one of your fans sent me the One Man's Justice and I haven't had a chance to, go do it. to watch it go yet. Go do it immediately. I, I, go, well, yeah, a, I just need to hear I'll, what you I'll think of it. I'll send it to Jamie too. I, I, yeah, oh, please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, I need to hear what you think of it, A, but B, like you're just going to have the best time. Yeah, Sweet. Kurt Wimmer and Brian Bosworth. I got to see what that combo Dream is. Um, yeah, so uh, <laughs> definitely be going to check that out. Uh, for our listeners, we're going to be back in one week's time, as Jamie hinted at the beginning of the episode, episode 250. Uh, it's been Crazy. a long journey to get here. We knew we had to celebrate with a massive episode. So uh, it's, it's happening in the middle of November. We're going to tackle two of the biggest noirs we somehow haven't covered yet, and both of them are about very, very lonely uh, screenwriters going through existential crises. One, the movie that comes to mind when I said that, you probably already conjured it, Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be talking about the Billy Wilder. And then we're going to be talking about, uh, as I already sort of hinted at, one of my all-time favorite noirs, if maybe not my number one, at least my number two. We're going to be talking about In a Lonely Place, Nicholas Ray, Humphrey Bogart, uh, one of the most devastating uh, breakup movies ever and probably my uh, favorite Bogart performance. And also, it's got Gloria Graham in it. We love Gloria Graham, the big heat, Fritz Lang, one yes. of the, our favorite noirs that we've covered on this show. So more Gloria Graham is always welcome as well. So that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Or, uh, yeah, next week over on the Patreon exclusively for November, And then the week after... Uh, we are going to be back with a special guest where we're going to be talking about two noirs I haven't even heard of. Uh, so I, I can't even really give you a description on these. We're going to be talking about one called Le Corbeau and Address Unknown. And this is going to be with our, our good friend of the pod and one of our very first patrons who's been a longtime supporter of the show, Steve Carlson. I always trust Steve because yeah. he has seen way more trash than I will ever see in my lifetime. <laughs> and uh, every time I ask him on, he always brings us a movie that has been logged by like less than a thousand people. Um, <laughs> he's the one who brought us the shot on video horror that we've talked about. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he yeah, logs I'm, something I'm sure whatever like these 50 people have logged almost every day. It's just wild what he dives into. It's awesome. 
yeah so if, if he's saying these two noirs are worth talking about and i haven't heard of them i'm gonna believe him so that's what we're gonna be talking about in two weeks time and then just to throw it out there anyway in three weeks time for to wrap up noir november we'll just we'll, we'll tease it out anyway uh it's an episode i've been wanting to do for a long time we're gonna do boxing noirs we're gonna talk about the setup by robert wise a great film Incredible movie and then we're gonna we're going to be pairing that with Brian De Palma's Snake Eyes going neo-noir mode, talking about Nick Cage in the middle of a boxing match as well. Uh, so then that's going to round out November. So we got it. We got some big heavy hitters coming this month. Look forward to that. Uh, but that being said, this has been a long one. So that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. <laughs>